Welcome to the Queen Anne's County Commissioner's Meeting. This is a public meeting that is being aired live on our local cable television station, QAC-TV7. This meeting is also being streamed live over the Internet at www.qac.org backslash live. These media broadcasts provide county citizens an opportunity to watch and review our scheduled public sessions. We acknowledge your participation, and by attending, you acknowledge that this session is both recorded and aired. The scheduled agenda is available on the information table just outside of our meeting room. Press and public comment will be taken and is limited to three minutes per person. If you care to speak, you must sign the sheet on the information table outside. Comments longer than three minutes can be submitted in writing for the commissioner's review. During the meeting, we would ask that you turn off all electronic devices and hold personal conversations outside of our meeting room. We will now stand and be led in the Pledge of Allegiance by Commission President Jim Moran. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. If we can remain standing for a moment of silence for the impending issues we're going to be having with this coronavirus and everybody to just use a little common sense. Thank you very much. Right, commissioners, we just held a closed session for the appointment, employment, assignment, promotion, discipline, demotion, compensation, removal, resignation, or performance evaluation of an appointee, employee, or official under Section 3-305B1 of the general provision of the article to discuss appointments of boards and commissions. So we did... Um, I think we did reach some consensus on a few boards and commissions. Uh, first one, I believe, was the uh, Bicycle and Pedestrian Committee. Mm -hmm. I think we had an appointment there. Can I get a motion on that? A move. Second. And that was to appoint uh, Steve, Steve Pringle. Steve Pringle to a yeah. three-year term. Yeah. We have a, a motion and a second. All those in favor, signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? So moved. You made a motion with that. Okay. Thank you, Commissioners. Uh, the second one we had was the uh, Broadband Advisory Council, and I believe we had four individuals to reappoint there. Paper, Phil. Hmm? Do you have a paper motion on that? Will you check them off? Uh, Tab fine. I do. I do, I do. So we're... Reappointing, so I make a motion that we reappoint Ed Cummins, Allison Davis, and Joseph Evans. Second. second. We have a motion and a second. Any discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? So moved. Right, commissioners, thank you. We have uh, the next board was the Property Tax Assessment Board, and we had one vacancy, one applicant, and this would be a recommendation to send this nominee to the governor for official appointment. Make a motion to send David Hoxie's name to the governor for appointment. Second. We have a motion and a second. Any discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? So moved. Okay, and our last one for today is the Commission on Aging. We had two vacancies and one applicant uh, for that one vacant slot. I move to appoint David Hoxie to fill a remaining unexpired term on the Aging Commission to begin effective immediately and end on December 35th, 31st, 2022. Second. 
Any discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? So moved. All right. Thank you, Commissioners. That moves us to uh, approval of today's agenda. Today's agenda for our meeting, March 10th, 2020, along with the regular and closed session minutes from your February 25th meeting and the Sanitary Commission minutes from your February 11th meeting were distributed for review. Were there any additions and or corrections? Uh, just one. And you know how I love to find these, Margie, don't you? Yes, sir. Right under County Commissioner's schedule, what does it say on your paper? I don't have one. one. Oh, okay. Well, it says Tuesday, May 10th. I just think we might want to make it March 10th. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Any other corrections? <laughs> that's enough. That's just a proof he read that. That's all. You know that. I couldn't let her get by with that submitted. one. I would certainly check your shoes for glass over the next <laughs> month. <laughs> Need a motion to approve? Motion to accept is amended. Second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? There you go. Okay. Thank you, commissioners. That brings us to our first press and public comments period. Thank you for taking the time to express your views to the county commissioners during this public comment period. Comments are limited to three minutes in length. Comments longer than three minutes should be submitted in writing. When you come forward, please speak clearly at the standing microphone. State your name, address, and topic of interest. Keeping with the dignity of the office, we ask that all views be expressed in a respectful and civil manner. This commission respects your desire and right to convey your message freely. We ask as a courtesy to the board and our citizens that you respect the commissioner's request and refrain from naming citizens and name-calling when offering any critique. Mary Margaret, first and foremost. One of the two key factors to getting our easements recorded and therefore getting to the state money to be able to pay our mason for the work done at Bloomfield has been the finding of the graves that exist on Bloomfield. And if you've been reading the Facebook posts on our Mary Edwardine Burke Emery uh, Facebook page, you will have seen the big sign that says, we found the graves. Uh, we found six babies and five adults. And they are all members of Mary Edwardine Burke Emery's family, uh, including three of her little babies. She herself is buried in Centerville, uh, Chesterfield Cemetery, because the regulations had changed at that time uh, when she died, so she had to be buried here, but her wish had been to be buried at Bloomfield. Um, but I just wanted to share that with you because uh, it's really important. I was afraid we were going to end up putting a building on top of the graves, and that would have been horrific. So anyway, we found them. And thanks to Dave Friedel, who donated his services with the ground-penetrating radar. So it was a very big deal. What's next? Pardon? What's next? What's next? Mm -hmm. Wow. The next thing will be if we are able to get our bond money from the legislature, which on Saturday I had a feeling we would do that, um, we will uh, 
redo the entire first floor interior of the building and do all the remediation that needs to be done and the repair. And then we will also do another summer of construction on the outside, so we will repair all of the cracks under the windows and completely uh, stabilize the oldest part of the building. And we will be really ready to open in August, I hope. Very good. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Uh, next is Kathleen. Is it McCann? McCann? McCann. McCann. Yes, ma'am. Good evening, and thank you for the opportunity to speak before you this evening. Uh, my name is Kathleen McCann. I am on the board of directors of the Animal Welfare League of Queen Anne's County, and I am a practicing attorney uh, based in this county. I want to express my deep disappointment in the county for the way the Animal Welfare League has been treated by the county. The Animal Welfare League has served this community well for at least six years. We have fulfilled our obligation as an independent contractor with this county. We have fulfilled our obligations under the MOU that was renewed in December of 2016. It is my opinion that this county had no legitimate reason for terminating the MOU so abruptly the way it did, and coming in without warning and taking over the shelter. This county had allocated funds to the Animal Welfare League for the fiscal year 19 to 20, and there was no reason for the county to cut off funding so suddenly and to take the shelter away from us the way it did. As an independent contractor, we had every right to run our business as we saw fit, so long as we fulfilled our obligations to the county. That meant that we hired all of the personnel, paid them from our funding, and from the funding that we raised. The former director of the Animal Welfare League reported directly to us, and while he did some good things for the shelter, he fell down badly at the, on his job at the end. He stated to us that he could no longer support the mission of the Animal Welfare League, and on January 9th, he resigned at a board meeting. Meanwhile, we had discovered things that he had been mismanaging, including leaving shelter doors unlocked all night on numerous occasions, irresponsible spending of Animal Welfare League funds, failure to maintain proper protocols, including failure to check the outside drop-off kennels for at least six weeks when a dead dog was found in one of them on January 11th, failing to obtain the board's permission for discretionary euthanasia, and failing to withdraw his resignation or give us his resignation in writing, despite stating to our president that he would do so. For the county to step in and demand that we hire this director back and fire the board so the county could appoint a new board was overreaching, totally unfair, and uncalled for. The Animal Welfare League did not deserve to be treated like that, and the public needs to be aware of how we were treated. Thank you. Thank you. Emily Miller. 
Good evening. My name is Emily Miller. I'm sorry, I'm going to read directly from this because I don't like speaking. Um, Emily, could you move the microphone up a little bit? Sorry, yes. Thank you. I am a Queenstown resident, and I am here to share my experience concerning the current situation surrounding the county's open admission animal shelter. I have worked for AWL, been a volunteer, served on the board, and most recently worked as a contracted bookkeeper. So it's a mission, an organization with a mission dear to my heart. For my own peace of mind, I simply want to share my disappointment in the actions of the county in the way in which it terminated the contract with AWL and to point out what occurred from my perspective as a huge overreach of power and bullying. AWL did nothing wrong and was not in breach of any expectations set forth in the MOU with the county to trigger the immediate dissolution of the agreement with AWL. If there were any wrongdoings or failure to perform on AWL's part, the county never shared them with AWL's board, though given many opportunities to do so. Instead, the county fired AWL immediately because they would not rehire an employee, the former director, after he resigned for ethical reasons when the board of directors asked to delay the euthanasia of two dogs that he deemed unfit for adoption. The board wanted to attempt to find these animals placement, both of which are now in homes, one placed by the board, one by the staff with Ramon gone. Neither dog has had any negative incidences. My point is not about the euthanasia, which at times is necessary and a very difficult decision, but that the simple act of not hiring Ramon, who had a truly differing philosophy than the organization, and the subsequent attempts by the board to run the organization resulted in the immediate termination of the contract. Not only was there any need for immediate termination, which resulted in sloppy, confusing transfer of power, liabilities, and responsibilities, the county, both before and after Ramon's employment ended, encouraged Ramon and other staff of AWL to circumvent their boss, the board of directors, and go straight to the county, completely undermining the board's authority and ability to function properly. AWL responded to the county's demands with a thoughtful and thorough letter that was met without a formal response. Only a couple more verbal ultimatums and then the immediate termination of the relationship. I am not sure, I'm sure there are versions of the story from many other perspectives. I only speak as a member of the AWL community and think that these, the overreach of the county into the operations of a private organization and the bullying to to get what they wanted, are important distinctions to make, especially for anyone considering working with or for this county. My hope for the animals is that you take the task of appointing an oversight body of the organization very seriously. All the people that are there in the shelter care about the animals, but there is always room to learn and grow, especially for such a green staff, including the director. To learn, you have to be open to people who do not always agree to you, which has seemed to have been a major problem throughout this entire ordeal. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you. That is all that signed up to speak. Would anybody else like to speak at this time? Any issues? Seeing none, we'll close press and public comment. Yeah, you can. Uh... All right, Commissioners, before we call up the Department of Public Works, I just want to say that um, we did um, terminate the uh, memorandum of understanding with the Animal Welfare League uh, last week. We want to uh, thank them, you know, for their efforts on behalf of the animal population. We've determined as the overriding um, motive for this is that the principal financial responsibility rests with the county commissioners in the county, and we have that public accountability for us going forward, and we want a little more oversight and control over the uh, animal population and the animal welfare uh, shelter in Queenstown. 
I will say that we, uh, we met with the Welfare League a number of times, myself uh, and their uh, executive committees, to try to work through this uh, in a more amicable way. Um, the separation, we wanted also to be amicable. We gave them, you know, 30 days to, uh, to sort of transfer the ownership and power over to the, back to the county. And um, so we were trying to make that, that happen as well. We are going to retain all of the existing staff at the shelter to carry forward uh, the good care of the animals, and we, uh, we intend to do that uh, going forward. Thank you. Okay. All right, next up we have the Department of Public Works. So uh, Director of Public Works, Alan Quimby, and Chief Reds Engineer, Shane Moore, come on up. Good afternoon, Commissioners. Good evening. Good evening, Commissioners. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. I'm, I'm sorry, uh, tab two. Tab two is the Department of Public Works action items. I believe they have... Uh, up to you. <laughs> Four or five things. Go ahead. Sorry, Ann. Take it away. First item is on the roads board, and it's just an informational item to let the citizens know that the county is hosting the has household hazardous waste disposal event this year, April 25th, at the Public Works facility in 312 Safety Drive from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. It's a great opportunity to get rid of a lot of uh, issues around your house that typically shouldn't go to a landfill, and it's uh, usually quite well attended. Well attended. Anyone needs a flyer on what is and is not uh, allowed, they can go to the county's website and find so. Any questions? None. When they, so when, when just just for the folks that are watching, when they get to the county website, mm -hmm. what what um, they looking for? Department of Public Works to the, to click on to find out what items household items they can bring and what they can't. I would think it would be under public works and uh, solid waste, yes. Solid waste. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Yep, there is a flyer in the book, and we can certainly circulate that. This has been a very popular event for our citizens uh, to bring their stuff, and we are, as Alan mentioned, hosting that here in Queen Anne's County this year, so it's an opportunity to get rid of some old gasoline and paint from your house. Electronics. So, electronics, yeah. Very popular. It does circulate, right? Um, amongst yeah. the other counties. Yes. I mean, so just because you don't get Queen Anne's this year, just keep an ear out because I think it goes moves to Caroline Town. It's Caroline, then yeah, the four Caroline's all but there's four. There's one every year, but it does circulate. Right. Okay. Oh, just twice a year. Twice a year. Twice a year. Yeah. April and October. Excellent. Okay. Excellent. Moving on. Yep. You. Uh, next item is the systematic replacement of. Uh, Four containers, four 40 yard containers for the Solid Waste Division. Um, would you like me to read the motion? Or? I get a motion on that? Yep. That's item two on page three. I move uh, to purchase four 40 yard containers from Mid Atlantic Waste of Easton, Maryland, in the amount of $26,646 via the NJPA Sourcewell contract. Second. We have a motion and a second. Any discussion? So this is just replace dumpsters that are used in their transfer stations? Yes, we replace four every year. Okay. And dispose of four through scrap metal. Any other discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? And one absent. Okay. All right. Now, item three is on page eight. This is for mini excavator. Okay. Yes, the Rose Division is requesting to purchase one 
Kubota mini excavator from Burke Equipment, uh, Felton, Delaware. This again is a systematic replacement. We currently have three in our inventory. Uh, one has been um, given to the Parks Department, and we will be replacing that with uh, this, this new purchase. <laughs> they got enough new stuff. <laughs> they got a lot of I new was trucks. thinking of something clever to say, <laughs> but Steve's here, so I can't. Uh, I moved to purchase one Kubota X. KX057 uh, mini excavator from Burke Equipment Company of Felton, Delaware, in the amount of $73,255.27 via the NJPA Sourcewell pre established contract. Second. We have a motion and a second. Any discussion? This piece of equipment is 15 years old. And so, uh, I. Speaking for the commissioners, we appreciate you guys getting everything out of the equipment that you get before you come to what come to us. We appreciate it. And Steve, thank you for willing to take the hand-me-downs at Parks and Rec. <laughs> Any other discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? One absent. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, the last item is a systematic replacement of a one one three-quarter ton pickup truck and we'd actually like to table that and we will come back next month with that one okay and i'll take a motion to turn go into sanitary motion to go into sanitary second all in favor aye, aye. there we go Fire thank you commissioners away. first item is a uh, request for additional water and sewer allocation for the Shelf's development llc hotel between crab deck and the narrows restaurant as you know they uh, they had an approved plan some time ago <laughs> Um, for whatever reason, that, that plan never reached fruition, so they've come back with another iteration, and the largest change is it went from 99 rooms to 120 rooms, which would require more water and sewer allocation. So in 2015, they were given 7,351 gallons of allocation. With this new iteration, they're going to need another 1,160 gallons per day of water and sewer allocation at a cost of $64,691. Mm. I move to grant an additional 1,160 gallons per day of water and sewer allocation to the Schultz Development LLC for its proposed 120-room hotel at a cost of $64,691, for which a 10% non-refundable deposit will be required within 30 calendar days. Second. We have a motion and a second. Any discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? So moved. All right, commissioners, the last item is the phase, ski phase two, Southern Kent Island phase two uh, project. Community main bids were received on February 4th. We had a good results in that we had six bidders respond. Uh, the lowest bidder was ECM Corporation out of Jessup in the amount of $1.4 million. Um, we were unfamiliar with ECM. I think I shared this with you the last time we met. So we did some more investigation, and uh, basically we came to a conclusion that there is uh, all this work is supposed to be uh, placed using the horizontal directional drilling technique, of which their experience was somewhat limited. So we've added a clause to their contract, which they are in agreement with, that they would hire a subcontractor to at least to do the, the most difficult portion, and they are they agreeable to that. So with them accepting that condition, uh, we felt comfortable to make the motion to accept their bid. It's also interesting to see out of the six bids how three were less than $2 million and three were more than $3 million, which really hmm. struck me as odd. Nobody was at $2 million. Hmm. All the years I've opened right? bids, I just they just <laughs> there's just no pattern to it when you open bids. Wow. Jack goes, well, it's, it's good. It's it's almost four hundred thousand dollars under what the engineer estimated. So yep, right. yep, very good. 
All right, can I get a motion? Move that we conditionally award the construction bid of Southern Canal and Phase Two Community Mains to ECM Corporation, amount of one million four hundred four thousand five hundred seventy-five dollars, with the condition being the review and approval of the bid by the Maryland Department of Environment, and also authorize the Director of Public Works to execute the agreement once any necessary submittals are in place. Second, we have a motion and a second. Any further discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed. So moved. Conclude our agenda. Very good. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you gentlemen. All right, commissioners, it is uh, six o'clock. We can do our public hearing now, if you like. If you want to flip over to tab number seven, we have County Ordinance 2020. We have Patrick Thompson, our county attorney, to officiate the hearing. Mr. Thompson. Um, at the regular meeting on February 11, 2020, Commissioner Moran introduced County Ordinance Number 2002, a bill entitled "An Act Concerning the Establishment of the Queen Anne's County Farmland Preservation Fund for the Purpose of Safeguarding the Vital Industry of Agriculture in Queen Anne's County, Preserving More County Farmland Through Enhanced Participation in the Programs of." the Maryland Agricultural Land Preservation Foundation and, permanent, and permanently allocating certain tax revenues to a, to, to a new farmland preservation fund by adopting a new section 5-32 to article 9 of chapter 5 of the Code of Public Local Laws of Queen Anne's County. This hearing is being held Tuesday, March 10, 2020 at 6 p.m. in the County Commissioner's Meeting Room Liberty Building 107 North Liberty Street, Central Maryland. Copies of the proposed ordinance have been available at the County Commissioner's Office uh, during normal business hours or online at the County website. Speakers will be limited to three minutes each. Written testimony of any length can be submitted on before the hearing dates to the County Commissioners. All hearing sites are accessible to individuals with disabilities. Sign language interpreters and assistive listening systems are available. For the record, the proceeding will be a certificate of publication indicating the notice of tonight's hearing was published in the Queen Anne Record Observer and the Ken Island Bay Times, both newspapers in general circulation in Queen Anne's County. Uh, signed up is Jay Falstaff. Good evening, Commissioners. Jay Falstaff from Queen Anne's Conservation Association. And uh, uh, I want to urge a strong support of Ordinance 02, uh, or, or 2002 and thank Commissioner Moran for introducing it. Um, there are a lot of reasons, in my view, to support this bill, and I hope ultimately you can find a way to uh, move this along favorably. Um, let me give you a couple of reasons why this bill is so important. Um, this past fiscal year, Donna Smith, who I know is here, um, established herself as the new Queen of Green, um, successfully uh, <laughs> taking a, an investment of $1 million and converting that uh, into nearly $6 million. Um, I hope she's asked to speak because it's an impressive result. But um, with that $6 million, as I understand it, uh, she was able to secure over 1,000 acres. And this is on top of the 
many thousands of acres that she's been able to preserve um, over the course of her term. Um, the second reason that this is so important is the MALF program is extremely popular, uh, and farmers want it. And right now, I think, again, I hope you'll ask Donna to come up here and talk. Um, there is a long list of farmers that want to enroll in the program, and, um, and so it's extremely popular. Farmers right now in Queen Anne's County are struggling. A number of them want to uh, continue farming, keep their farm in the family, and uh, this bill would go a long way towards doing that. And in the end, it keeps farmers farming. Right now, Queen Anne's County is the largest grain-producing county in the entire state, and that is a distinction that I think we can all be proud of. This will go a long way towards cementing that place uh, for years to come. So with that, I urge favorable support on this. Um, there's really no reason not to do it. It doesn't cost anybody anything. All it is is taking a, a tax off of uh, solar production. That solar has already taken up farmland. So with that, why don't we try and also preserve farmland for the land that we're taking up? So with that, uh, thank you very much for the time, and I urge support of this. Thank you. That gentleman person who signed up, is there any other public comment? Yes, we go. <clears throat> yes, I'm uh, Chastine Brooks, Queen Anne's resident, Church Hill. Um, I'm coming out here to support this uh, 2002. Um, as a young and farmer, we took over a grandmother's farm, and uh, I think the more we can put in preservation and is, is better, the best for the county and best for all of us up and comers to uh, be able to keep keep things going. And um, again, I support this 2002. Thank you. Thank you. Um, my name's Trip Callahan. I'm a farmer out to Reesburg, and I just wanted to um, say that um, I found out about this this bill this morning, so I just wanted to uh, contribute that I'm, I'm, I want to be a preservationist too, as well as a farmer, and I'm hoping that my farmland will continue many, many years in the future. I don't want to see any houses built on it, and I uh, certainly would any help that you can get from, uh, I understand that this tax is, is going to be raised from a larger solar panel uh, in, in, um, installations, yep. installations, yep. fields, solar fields. And I think that's very fair. Uh, they should do their fair, do their fair share. It's a new crop is the way I look at it. We're harvesting electrons instead of, and I think it may need to be done in large amounts. I have a small solar installation on my farm, I would caution you that uh, please don't tax the small people uh, or, 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 the, or the farmers. I mean, that's, that's to my benefit and to all farmers, I think. And, and I'm trying to urge, uh, it's been a good investment for me, and I'm trying to urge more farmers to put it on their uh, poultry uh, on their poultry houses and stuff like that because it uses a huge amount of electric to poultry houses. But um, anyway, 
um, um, with that caution, I think this is very fair for for the electric companies to to help contribute to to keep farmland. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, uh, my name is Ben Armiger. I own uh, Blue Heron Farm. It's a, fi- a four-generation farm, um, and I just wanted to voice my support uh, for uh, farmland preservation. Um, it's the fact that I own this farm has been nothing short of an act of God that we've been able to hold on to it through the generations, and I now have three children, uh, and we want them to be able to farm and pass it on to their children. And for me, it's it's the rural legacy program, but mouth and all of that. Uh, it's it's uh, extremely important to my family and our future, and I appreciate your support for those that program. Thank you. Thank you. Any other public comment? We're going to ask the Queen of Green. Yeah, they ordered it. Donna, come on up. Maybe you explain to the public at home that's watching this, you know, how this program works, also what kind of a wait list we have and how much we've done. Good evening, Commissioners. Um, The MAP program is a program ran through the Maryland Department of Agriculture, and the MAF stands stands for what? MAF is Maryland Agricultural Land Preservation Foundation. It is an established program since 1977, and participants are, it's voluntary. There are farmers and landowners that come in to me and express an interest in preserving their farmland. The farmland is preserved in perpetuity, which restricts any development from uh, residential use. It has to stay as agricultural use, and it is maintained as a farm basically forever. And it runs with the land, so if the land is sold, it will run with the land that it has to stay in agriculture. The funding comes from the agricultural transfer tax, which means when a piece of property is taken out of agricultural use and transferred into residential use, a 5% tax is um, paid on that transfer. That funds land preservation. Queen Anne's County is able to retain 80% of that 5% fee that's paid at the time of the transition, and the remaining 20% is sent to the state. If the county participates in land preservation, we also receive money from the state from the 20% that they collect from all counties. So we actually, in essence, get part of our 20% back that we remit to the state. The state has a program called the Matching Funds Program. If the county puts in county money up to $1.3 million, the state will match that $2 for every dollar that we pledge, up to the $1.3 million. Um, as mentioned earlier, Jay Falstead from Queen Anne's Conservation uh, said that we were able to um, secure a total of $7.5 million through the Rural Legacy Program and MOUTH with pledging $750,000 of county money. I actually just got our funding from this past year a week ago. We pledged nine hundred and I believe it was seventy-five thousand dollars. We have secured three point eight million dollars on that return of nine hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars. So we have a good return again this year. Is that round one or round two? That's round one. Right. So that's just what we initially have received. So it's a good investment. You know, farmland, as been mentioned, we are the largest grain-producing county in the state, and with the acquisitions that we are going to acquire this year, we are now number two in the state for the most preserved land. We surpassed Caroline County. Excellent. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) And I do have a very, very long list. I have, and I continue to have people interested in coming in, I have over 20,000 acres on a waiting list right now. Some of those properties have been waiting over 15 years for funding. 
It's just we just don't have enough to go around. And what the state does has asked the county to not only take the prime agricultural lands, they're asking us to include discounting. And we give a 50% weight to quality of farm and 50% weight to discounted asking prices compared to the appraisal prices. So we're averaging about 50% of what the farm is actually appraised for. So it's, it's a bargain sale and we stretch our money as much as we possibly can and ultimately we have made some uh, landowners very happy because as Mr. Armager had said, it's generational a lot of times. These farms are passed down through generations and the younger generation that are coming in now, it's really hard to start out if they don't have the farms left to them through the family. And the original easement owners, our very first easement was done in 1982. <coughs> that farm is, you know, has now been passed down to his grandchildren, and they still live on the farm. So it's a win-win situation for the county. Um, this, when we had originally talked about the fees on solar, it is basically the same thing. You're taking agricultural land out of agricultural production and putting it into a commercial renewable energy use. So utilizing that same pathway as um, a transfer from ag into residential use is basically the same thing. So you're taking it out of an agriculture use, putting it into a commercial use, and land preservation benefits from those fees. So how many farms were we able to, to put into uh, – you gave us a total number of acreage that went into preservation, but yes. what's that? We had six farms funded this six. year Yes, in the first round offer. So we're making big strides. That's 17 farm, 18 farms in the last two years we've been able to preserve. So with that acreage, I don't have the acreage right off the top of my head, but it's probably well over 2,000 acres in the last two years. Mm -hmm. Very good. Well, you yeah. do a great job. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. So we've, we're making that now. So let me think. With the $3.8 million, we're up to almost $60 million in the last 50, 15 years. Hmm. And preservation. Yes. Great. Yep. Outstanding. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Great. I'm in support of the bill. There you go. <laughs> and just, just so the, the public understands, uh, <coughs> this came about when these large megawatt solar farms that you see now, it's, I think we've got to set it over five megawatts is, is what this is, and they go on a pilot program uh, for their taxes, and this is their personal property. It's the only thing in the county that gets taxed or these solar arrays for the personal property. So it's not, it, it, we're actually, the tax goes on those big panels. And those panels have a life expect, expectancy of 25 years, I believe it is. So every year, the county gets a check that's rated for those solar panels and what they're worth. And again, you know, the, 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 the whole cusp of this came about by we're taking prime. We have some of the best land on the entire eastern seaboard for farming, and this came about by, since they have to pay, since, they, since we came up with a personal property, why not put it towards preservation of our farms? So this bill will, the first million dollars that we get from these solar arrays will go towards Donna's budget to secure as much farmland as possible every year. So that, that's what this transpires from. And another thing that in the process of this, uh, we, we've started now where we don't want, you know, what, what has happened in the past is some of these solars come in here and the topsoil, topsoil has been stripped off the farm and we don't want that. So, you know, what's nice about this is in 30 years, if this is obsolete and there's another way, a better way to produce energy, the panels can come up and farming can begin again on, on that same piece of property. So 
I think it's a huge win for the county. It's a huge win for our farms, and it is our number one business. And I'm glad to see we're finally number two. So, Pat, I don't know what else you have left. But nope. That's Do you it. have a public comment? Close Anybody else? So we'll go ahead and close public comment at this time. And uh, we'll, like it's customary for us, we're going to hold the, the vote for two weeks, and at our next session, we'll, we'll vote on this bill. So thank you very much. All right. All right, thank you, Patrick. All right, commissioners, we can do our action items now. We have, um, if you want to turn to tab number three, item one is a, um, a sample opposition letter to Senate Bill 1069, construction of toll roads. And this is a, this would actually be a series of letters we would send opposing this particular bill, which strikes the Eastern Shore County's ability to review and give consent to um, the state before they approve construction of a toll road or bridge. This would affect potentially uh, where the, the next bay crossing would be and our, our veto power, and it does affect the Eastern Shore counties. So this one's addressed to Senator Hershey. We would send it also to the um, Rules Committee, Delegate Aarons, and each of the counties that this, um, this bill would, would affect. I move to sign the opposition letters to Senate Bill 1069. Second. We have a motion and a second. Any discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? So moved. Who Thank was you, the bill introduced by? Do we? Uh, it was Miller. Mike Miller. Uh, Mike Miller Mike introduced Miller. this bill. I see. Todd, did we get those letters out to the other counties? We did. In fact, I sent some sample templates out to our, um, our my fellow counterparts in the other Eastern Shore counties so they could act on them tonight as well at their council meetings in the, on, the, on, the, on, the, on the Eastern Seaboard. All right. Uh, item number two on page three is... Um, a uh, request for support for a new museum uh, by the Sellersville Community Club, and this is a letter to support their grant application to the Maryland Heritage Areas Authority for design and construction of that. I move to sign the letter of support for the Sellersville Community Betterment Club to obtain grant funds to design and construct a new museum building. Second. We have a motion and a second. Any discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? So moved. All right, thank you, Commissioners. Item 3 on page 4 is a termination of open space easement for the Parsons Green Farm. This is a transfer of uh, and a termination of open space from going through the minor subdivision process from the cluster subdivision process. Can I get a motion on that? Move to approve the termination of open space easement to remove 249.816 plus or minus acres of open space established on lot one as part of a minor sliding scale subdivision of the lands of Parson Green Farm, LLC, intended to be recording among the plat records of Queen Anne's County. Second. I have a motion and a second. Any discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? So moved. Thank you, Commissioners. Item 4 on page 11 is a similar uh, termination of open space easement on the Altfather uh, Farm, 221 acres. Can I get a motion on that one, please? I move to approve this termination of open space easement to remove 221.763 acres of open space established on Parcel 1 as part of a minor sliding scale subdivision of the lands of David L. Denny and John C. Altfather, intended to be recorded among the plant records, uh, the plat records of Queen Anne's County. Second. Uh, any discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? So moved. 
Okay, thank you, Commissioners. Item 5 on page 19 is the Mattapique Industrial Park Grant Semi-Annual Progress Report. Can I get a motion on that, please? Move to approve and sign the Semi-Annual Progress Report as presented for the Community Development Block Grant Number MD11ED70 regarding Mattapique Industrial Park, which covers the time period of June 30, 2019 through December 31, 2019. Second. We have a motion and a second. Any discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? So moved. Thank you, Commissioners. Item 6 on page 23 is a subordination agreement for John Darling. He's going to um, refinance a moderate, moderately priced dwelling unit loan. Can I get a motion on that? I move that we sign and approve the subordination agreement from John W. Darling in order for him to obtain a lower interest rate and reduce the payment on his monthly mortgage. Second. We have a motion and a second. Any discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? So moved. Your commissioners, item 7 is a um, request for a uh, support letter for a new grant application for a program that's entitled Volunteer Trained to Drive and Socialize. And that's from uh, <coughs> Mike Clark, who's here to answer any questions about that, but this is a, a new program they want to try to get to have volunteers uh, go to seniors to door-to-door to provide homemaker services and friendly visits, and uh, provide respite and caregivers. So uh, we got a motion on that? Yeah. yeah. I move we sign support letter for grant request entitled Volunteers Trained to Drive and Socialize. Second. We have a motion and a second. Any discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? All right. So moved. Good luck with that, Mike. Thank you very much. All right. I'll be the first one to drive to Stevie's house. <laughs> <laughs> I thought we'd have that in the discussion, but Thank you guys let that go, didn't you? <laughs> uh, All right. Item number eight is um, on page 55 is a Cross Island Trail repaving uh, for the Department of Parks and Recreation. I move to authorize the Department of Parks and Recs to contract with David A. Bramlett to pave the Cross Island Trail in the amount of $190,000 from the Department of Parks and Rec's Parks Preventative Maintenance Project. Second. We have a motion and a second. Any discussion? Yes. Um, what section? Yes. Steve, come on up. All right. Steve, come on up. Thanks, Steve. And once again, thank you for taking that 15-year-old tractor. <laughs> <laughs> With that comes, <laughs> that oh, comes, comes all the requests. Comes the request. <laughs> You have a question for us? Yeah. So, what section of the trail are we are we doing here? What portion? Probably from from Terrapin all the way down to the Narrows. Terrapin to the Narrows. Yes. Okay. That's that's the entire length, right? Correct. The entire length yep. of the Cross Island Trail. Yes. Mm -hmm. Great. Now, the Southern Kent Island Trail. That is also scheduled to be repaved this year, but through a different funding source. Different funding source. Program. So this is just so the public understands this. We we, we are receiving. 190,000 from the state. How much are we getting from the state for this? And we're how much? getting 135,000. 135, the and then we're paying the rest. States. So we're we're better than two to one. Correct. At that, which is great. And then this is the money when it comes. So you're paying this out of your maintenance fund. That grant money will come in and refurbish your maintenance fund. That's correct. Excellent. So and we it will keep come. Going. It will come to you, sir. It will come well to the department, not to me. <laughs> <laughs> so when is it? When, when are we going to try to do this? Um, actually, we're, we're looking to be on their schedule sometime this month. We just need now a, a period of dry weather, and we're hoping to get both the Kent Island, um, I'm sorry, the, yeah, the South Island Trail and the Cross Island Trail done 
you know, early this year. Could I mean, you you've already started the process of going in there, so people see the markings on the on the trail and where you've been cutting it up and getting rid of some of the, the bad areas, all in preparation for a total repave. Correct. Our troop crews have already gone through and trimmed back all the um, the limbs in order mm -hmm. to allow the, um, the dump trucks Equipment to be able to, to lift there. up. And you What's know, the drive. length of the two pieces? Um, the Cross Island Trail, I think, is... Uh, just a little over six miles, and then the South Island Trail is about seven miles. Okay. Excellent. The Cross Island Trail is actually 20 years old, and this will be the first time it will be repaved. And the, um, the South Island Trail is about 17 or 18 years old, and this too will also be repaved for the first time. And will we get grant money for the South Island Trail? No. But the, this one we do because it is 20 years old, so Correct. we're able to apply for it again, which is great for the county. Excellent. Thank you. Appreciate it. Okay, so we have a motion to authorize the Department of Parks and Recreation to contract with David A. Bramble to pave the Cross Island Trail in the amount of $190,000 from the Department of Parks and Recreation Parks Preventative Maintenance Project. Seeing Second. no, yeah, we already have that. So oh, seeing, we had one? Yeah, we oh, okay. did. So seeing no, no further discussion, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? So moved. It's a full move. Yes, sir. That's what it is. I hear you. All right, thank you, Commissioners. Item 9 on page 57 is a property lien for a nuisance violation, high grass on a property in Graysonville. Uh, Any motion? I'll do it then. I move to approve resolution. Uh, that's not in the right spot. No, that's right. Is it right? That's a resolution. Re resolution yeah. 2002? Yeah. To place a lien on each of the properties listed in the County Zoning Administrator's Memorandum dated March 10, 2020 for nuisance violations. Second. We have a motion and a second. Any discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? So moved. Yeah, How do you always place? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Thank, thank you, Commissioners. Item number 10 on page 66 is um, a memo from um, Jeffrey Morgan, our um, fire marshal and assistant chief DES, and Scott Haas relative to the Queen Anne's County residential sprinkler system requirements for additions and alterations on single-family units. We have some recommendations here. This is kind of a discussion item. Uh, if you want to uh, have them come up and yep, review yep, this yep. with you, uh, they can do that. They have some recommendations here in the back, but basically we want to try to set some standards for when these uh, conditions would apply in, uh, in residential additions and alterations when there was repairs being made. Mm -hmm. Somebody, somebody's got to come up and give a little background. So I don't know if we want to, if you want to do it, if you want Vivian to do it. Uh, I mean, you know, just where where this is all coming from. Just give the background. Right. Vivian said they promised I wouldn't have to get up there. Yeah, we did <laughs> promise that. <laughs> Vivian, you could just give us a little background on how this started and why we're here today, if you don't mind. Okay. Well, in 2012, the county adopted the sprinkler ordinance. Um, at the time, the only people that were required to do sprinklers were people that were on public water. But in 2015, the state mandated that everybody do sprinklers, and the previous building inspector and the fire marshal sat down and looked at the code, and there was a provision in the building code that said if you renovated more than 50% of a structure, you had to comply with the current code. And they used that section as if you were renovating or adding on to your house, then that's when the sprinkler bill kicked in for additions and renovations. Perfect. Great. Thank you. Okay. All righty. So, so we're here today because uh, it's been brought to our attention that the state was originally going to do just what you said with with the 
amount of, of renovation done to a project versus a square footage would kick somebody into, okay, now you have to sprinkler that home. But the state never came through and enacted that. Is that correct? Am I correct in that? To say that the state never said, mandated that change in, in the code. The state stayed away from the renovation, went with the new construction, and we're here today because we're one of, I don't know, I think you said we're only one or two counties that's actually doing it. I can't remember what you told me. Uh, so that's what the discussion today is about because it, it was just a, uh, not a procedure, what are we calling this, a, a policy. And, you know, I think it was never codified. Correct. At the state yeah. level. So, so we're here today to discuss that issue and where we want to go as, as, a, as a county with this uh, uh, renovation issue with, with sprinklers. And with that, I'll turn it over to you, esteemed gentlemen. Well, the, the state does have a policy. They just don't have it in writing, and it has to be reviewed by their plan reviewer. Mm -hmm. And that's only when it's turned over by the jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. The state's a little different than the county because they're a statewide jurisdictional, and they're not located in each county. So all their stuff gets turned in from Lake Talbot or Caroline goes to Easton, mm -hmm. their Easton office, and reviewed. Mm -hmm. um, but it's only the stuff that the county actually submits to them. If, if they don't submit it, the state doesn't look at it. Whereas in this county, everything pretty much that gets close to that 50% is sent to my office for review okay. and decision. And I can also tell you um, we pulled uh, the stats on it, and since that policy went into effect, uh, there have been 812 total renovations from 2015 till uh, the end of February of this year. And of those 812, 68 required the sprinklers, and that's 8% of that total. So, And that was using the current policy of 50% 50%, yes, renovation. So I think that's the, the recommendation going forward is, is to set that as our standard. Well, we'd, uh, we'd like to continue that. But I also put a, uh, a secondary recommendation in there if you guys feel that it's not appropriate to use the 50%. I also put something in there of using a 75% threshold, but then that would trigger to require the whole entire dwelling to be sprinklered. Currently, the way the policy is written is you're only required to sprinkler the portions that you're renovating, adding, or altering. That doesn't include... Like, if you're going in and tearing carpet up or hardwood floors right. and replacing that, right. that doesn't trigger that threshold. Right. If you're tearing um, paneling off or stuff like that, that doesn't trigger that. It's it's when they start, you know, tearing out the sheetrock and changing walls and right. structure. And, and the those main, 812 uh, renovation projects, I'm sorry, what was the number that, that hit that 50% threshold were? 68 were required 68, to okay. add sprinklers to that. Okay, thank you. And and the biggest trigger for this, from what I understand, just re researching this and, and asked Vivian on this also, was the um, the issue was you had um, builders or contractors who were coming in and they were basically gutting houses and leaving you know a portion of it, a small portion of it, and saying, well, look, we're not, we don't have to meet this sprinkler requirement because it's not a new home. It was kind of a kind of pushing the issue. So that's where that's where this policy came from. And they came up with the 50% because that's what was in the IBC at the time where they yeah. hit that 50% is what they said. So basically this is just eliminating the gray area? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, it, it, but if somebody does a renovation, it, it is our code that they have to have um, smoke detectors in the home, right? Yes. I mean, that's regardless, no matter what they do, they got to have 
yes. that smoke detectors, heat detectors, whatever you, you know, mm-hmm. and they have the system is the carbon code. monoxide one. And they have to be current code. Right. Not, yeah. You, so if you don't, if you have bedrooms that aren't detectored because under, or, or hallways that aren't proper detector right. entrances, and now you have to bring everything up to the 17 codes. So. so that would mean like the older homes had battery only smoke mm-hmm. detectors. Right. Now you got And they usually only had one on one floor. Right. And near mm-hmm. the bedrooms. Um, the new code is that you have to have one on each floor. They all have to be hardwired. You also have to have them in each bedroom. So if one goes off, they all go off. Mm-hmm. So. But it, they don't have to be hardwired, technically. Not with the new ones, the 10-year batteries. Uh, they do have to be hardwired. If you're replacing, if you're replacing the current battery-operated ones that you have in your house, they have to be the 10-year sealed battery units. Right, but if you put in a detector today, you can put in, if, if, it's, if it's a renovation, you can put in a battery-powered. That is. No, they're supposed to be hardwired. It's hardwired. I don't know. I think I beg to differ on it, but it's all right. (laughs) Okay. Well, and and I guess some of the thing, and and the reason we we got to this is because, you know, I think, uh, was it three years ago when the sprinklers came into effect, I think there was was a majority of commissioners at that time that didn't want to do it because of the cost that incurred on some of the smaller dwellings, not on county water, you know, not on public water, but on, on on the well and and the holding tanks. And, uh, you know, one, one thing that's always been pushed that you always hear in Queen Anne's County is we have vacant buildings, we have vacant buildings, we want the buildings filled. And it goes the same thing with, with the homes. So, you know, uh, there, there is a concern that this is, one, it's, it's not mandated by the state. So why are we, you know, going above that mandate? And I, I understand why, but there is a cost associated with it. And, you know, that's something that we as commissioners have to weigh in doing this, and, and you know, I, I I will tell you my my own personal opinion is is I you know for the renovations I think that that should be left up as as a, you can request but not demand, and that's that's my feeling on this, and so that these buildings get filled, especially if they have to have uh, the smoke detectors in them now, you know, with with the current code. I think everybody in this room, I don't know how many people in this room actually have a sprinkler system, and they have smoke detectors, so. You know, I think, you know, again, I understand on, on new construction, and, and, and that's a state law, and, and, I, and I, I support that. Reluctantly, I support that. And, and I just, when it comes to renovations, I think that's something that we have a little bit of room that we as commissioners can decide what we want to do there. So this is what, that's why we're here today to, to decide, you know, how, how we want this to move forward and make a decision so it can be policy and or, uh, you know, put it into the code. So one, one other small sure. component to this mm-hmm. is defining what a renovation is. Uh-huh. And that's kind of where the 50% came up also. Right. So we've got a definition from a renovation as long as you still use the, the same foundation to as long as there's still one wall left standing mm-hmm. to a wide variety of things. So mm-hmm. if you vary from this, then we, we definitely need to come up with something with what a renovation is. And that is not clear. Mm-hmm. And that is one thing. If we go away from the 50% or the 75% rule, it needs clarified at the end of this regardless. Mm-hmm. So, so um, Jeff, is it, a, is it a square footage thing? I mean, you guys are talking about gutting walls. And, but, I mean, if they're increasing the square footage of, say, living area by 50%. Of the current square footage. Of the current of. square footage. So that's kind of – so, you, you know, what is renovation? Well, doesn't matter. If you're increasing the square footage of the footprint of the property by 50% or more. Well, that's, that's actually an addition, which is 
there are three different things. It's renovations, additions, and alterations. Okay. So that's where they trigger that. Renovation is you're in, you're tearing walls out, structurally changing maybe how rooms are defined and that kind of thing in an existing house, not an addition to that house. Not like building off the right. back or something right. like that. I'd, I'd also ask the commissioners maybe they want to table this for at least until the legislation session is over because the state fire marshal's office has a bill in place right now going through the state legislature to give them more authority for residential sprinklers. I mean, as you're well aware of the Worcester and the Allegheny <coughs> issues. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a, um, an enforcement. But I think their enforcement is on new dwellings. I think Worcester and, and whoever else has said we don't want to do them at all. And I, this, we're not saying that. We're saying the new construction moves forward with the sprinklers. But, but what I'm saying is I don't know whether if that is passed and it goes over to the state fire marshal for more endorse, enforcement authority, they might not. One of the main reasons they didn't do the 50% rule when they were supposed to in the first place is because they had no enforcement authority to do it. Mm -hmm. The bill that's going through right now would give them the enforcement authority to do it. Uh, right. They, they might enact that. I, I'm not saying they will. Which I'm is fine. I mean, if, possibility. If, if, if we want to hold it, but if they, they, it would usurp us anyway. So even if we were to say, look, we don't want anything that was has to do with renovations having to go through the expense of sprinklers and the state says oh yes they will we lose so we, we totally understand that that's not like you know we're not worcester county so so we won't we wouldn't be but i mean going. i still i still believe that the the 50 is on homes on well and you're doing a 50 percent renovation on a home on well that, it just adds such an expense to do it and you have kids out there matter of fact i have one just in my neighborhood just bought one of the houses in there and probably be subject to that but, and he's not going to because of the cost. I mean, you've got to get the tank, you've got to get the pumps, you, um, you've got to hope your well's uh, going to hold up to it. And, it's and just you're the only one in the neighborhood with it? Yeah, and that's just it. Right. You know, There's 18 other homes in there, and he's going to be the only one that's going to have to have sprinklers. So it's just, I don't know. It, to me, it's the cost is it drives it more than anything at this point. And on a renovation, I agree with Jim on new construction. That's up out of the ground. This this fifty percent is coming from the western shore. They don't deal with well water over there. They're, everything's you know city water and sewer. So they typically it's not a concern of theirs. They don't think about those well, of us that have to. The fifty percent didn't come from the western shore. It came from the code itself. They were the problem was they were trying to figure out what a renovation, a major renovation for a dwelling would be, and that's where they looked it up in the IBC, and they came up with the 50 percent for the But that's based on what Scott's talking about here, where the one wall's left, it's the foundation, and it's kind of unclear as to what 50 percent would be, right? Is, I mean, that sounds like that's part of the problem, too. No, it's, it's not, that's not the 50 percent. That would be what you would consider a renovation. If, it, if I buy a house right now that's standing and I knock it all the way down to the foundation, is that a renovation? Because according to what you guys want to do here, then that wouldn't be required to be sprinkler. But you'd actually be. Well, that'd be more than seventy-five percent. I well, mean, you, if, you, if you use your second, that's more right. than seventy-five percent. Yeah, but yeah. I, I guess to that point, and, and I, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, people that want to circumvent it would go buy an old house and tear it all down and just just build on the same footprint. But to me, that's that's not a bad thing. I mean, we're taking something old; it's an existing neighborhood, and we're renovating versus taking new land and building more homes on it. So, I, I don't. I mean, to me. I, I would. I'm in support of any type of renovation. Shouldn't have to fall underneath the sprinklers until the state mandates that it has to. But I under the building code, if you take that house down to the foundation, you're complying with the current code because you don't have anything to grandfather you. A foundation won't grandfather you. Okay. So it's going to get the sprinkler system anyway. Well, there you go. So that portion's covered. So yeah. so if somebody leaves one wall standing, then you're, you're still going to be past what's going to be. You have enough invested there with a wall. 
So if you have to reframe that whole house, okay. you have to comply with the current building code, the energy code, and the sprinkler. It's going to all kick in once you start taking that house okay, so apart. So where, where does it get? So the gray part is that most people will say, I'm only going to repair the interior walls. Well, a couple of times when our inspector got there, there was nothing left but a frame. Mm-hmm. And so he said, no, that's more than 50% of the structures missing. You need to comply with the code. And that's why they came up with that. I mean, we have that a lot. Somebody will say, I'm just going to renovate part of my house. When they get into it, they find out the insulation's no good or the wiring was bad and they had to redo something. So they had to take the whole house apart. That's a new house. Okay. And then that happens. Renovations are hard because you don't know what you have until you start taking it apart. Right, right. And that's to that point of, of an additional cost. So when you take somebody's renovating, again, something that's old, we're trying to bring back and, and use what's existing, and you, you tear it apart. Like you said, they find the insulation's bad, the sheetrock's bad, whatever the, the uh, whatever's going on in there. And now, not only do they have to fix all that, now they've fallen into Now I've got to get a sprinkler system. And they're, and they're, and they're having to come into compliance to code to repair those items that have mm-hmm. that, that need to be replaced because they're bad. So now they have to comply with code when they go to put that stuff back in. Plus, how do you, I mean, how do you, where is that line you walk up to? They, when, when you go in there and you look at this renovation or you take, you, you look at the plans of what they're going to do and you say, okay, well, if you go up to this wall, but don't take this wall out, when you take these out, you're at 49%, so you're good. If we, we you take this wall footage. out, you're at 50. Now you've got to put sprinklers in the whole house. So what, I could do two renovations over a period of two years. Do I qualify at that point? If I do 25, 30% of my renovation this year, come back next year, get another permit, and do another 30%, have I now done 50% to sprinkler? No. So, I mean, there's other ways. I don't know. To me, it's just not defined yeah. to say, okay, so everybody knows what they're getting into when they go in there. And that's the questions you get a lot of times from people is they're like, I didn't realize I was going to have to go put a sprinkler system in because right. I was just tearing out a few walls and putting new carpet in. You know what I mean? So I, I guess maybe it, I, I kind of agree. Maybe we should table this till we can define yeah. what, what those parameters are going to be so that what the percentages are going to be. Because I think that's and I can a fair also way to tell do you of, of the 68 homes that have been had to add sprinkler systems to, and I don't have the exact number, but I'm, we can get it for you. Um, a portion of those homes have have been fire-damaged homes. They have been what? Fire-damaged fire homes. They have been pretty much burnt. I mean, you have one on the island now that was just burnt out the other day that'll... Oh, and then they, then they came in and did a renovation after that. Yes. Right. So, so now that you're on the subject of that, I think one of the things the other side um, is why we have sprinklers. And, and, and you know, that universal answers they save lives so smoke detectors go off and people wake up and and the whole idea is to be able to get out of the building and and um sprinkler system once those smoke detectors goes off and the sprinkler system kicks in and puts the fire out not only does it save the lives of the people who live in that house but also the firefighters that have to go in and fight those fires if i may elaborate um exactly and sprinklers by time Sometimes they do extinguish the fire totally, but it's about life safety. You have an older person, a special needs person, someone that's trapped with smoke, even though the smoke detector sounds sprinkler buys time to allow escape. It decreases the temperature, so it increases survivability and decreases the fire spread. That way, when the fire department does arrive, it decreases risk of life and injuries to those firefighters arriving on scene. You're exactly correct. 
So let me ask a question. I'm certainly not versed in this, but would the fire companies, which would seem to me to have some opinion maybe, do they have a common opinion on this, or is it scattered, or what, what's your thought of what the people in the business think about it, or is that not answerable? Uh, so I think when this legislation reached a state level, Commissioner, um, there was a tremendous amount of support on the part of the fire services um, when this type of legislation, you know, breaches, uh, becomes a bill or, or is in a committee. Um, I mean, there's a huge outpouring from the fire department because of the fact of what sprinklers accomplish. And, and the issue you also have, and I understand what you're talking about economically with the places that don't have water other, other than wells and have to use tanks, those are the places where you need them the most because usually they're in the most remote areas. It takes a longer time for the fire service to get to them. And the other issue you have is you've got to, the firefighters go in those buildings to try and save somebody. That, that house has been burning for a period of 10, 15 minutes that pretty much weakens the structure and you have firefighters that fall through the floor and they end up getting seriously injured or killed because of that. So this is, it's kind of a twofold thing. It's, it, number one, it's there for the, the tenants, the residents to get out safely, to make it tenable so they can get out. But it's also there for the public safety personnel. So when they get on scene, so. And the State Fire Association is 100% in support of the changes that the State Fire Marshal's Office is trying to do through legislation this year okay. to answer your question. But those changes are for enforcement, but are they for enforcement of renovations? I would say globally part of the problem when they implemented the sprinkler um, codes, <clears throat> there was no enforcement behind it. So they have been hesitant to enact anything on the sprinklers and fear that they would lose the legislation on it. So I think this enforcement bill, if it passes, is going to give them a lot of flexibility that they didn't have in the past, and they'll, it'll help them define the issues that we're having with the current codes, Well, if that answers your question. I guess the state fire marshal, who doesn't do Queen Anne's County because we have our own, but the state fire marshal that does other counties, Kent County, for instance, or Caroline County, if somebody was putting a renovation there, it was over 50 percent, would he make them require them to put a sprinkler in? And that, that answers iffy because it, one, depends if Kent County would give them that through their zoning office. And what we're finding out from the fire marshal's office, not all of those plans are going to them. And then they make their determinations on the plans that they receive. Well, I guess I'm a little confused because does a fire marshal, a fire marshal, state, county, whatever, have to look at those plans to approve those plans for that renovation? Vivian? If that office sends the plans to the fire marshal's office for review. So then I guess, all right, so let me take that a step further. Are you saying that, and I'm going to use Caroline County as an example, Caroline County is going to issue a permit for an addition without sending it to the fire marshal for review? Possibly. They're going to make the call. The, they're going to make the call permitting level if mm -hmm. it exceeds fifty percent. It's going to be a again. It's a judgment call that you're mm -hmm. going to say, eh, yeah, that's fifty percent. So I'm going to kick it up to the next level. So again, it's going to be per office. I think it's yeah. that's what I'm saying. There's really probably not going to find any consistent way. But I guess I, I mean I, I'm hearing conflicting stories because I, I was I was told that the state fire marshal does not enforce renovation sprinkler systems, no matter. 50%, 75%, or 25%, because it's not part, that's not part of their law, only covered new construction. Is that correct or incorrect? 
It's correct with a caveat. If they <laughs> they receive something that say is seventy five percent, where they knock walls down and stuff like that structurally, then there is a possibility that they, they can require a sprinkler system because they're going to deem it as a new structure. Okay. And that's why I put in here that the fact that they don't have a written policy, mm -hmm. but it's sent to their person. If the, if the county um, triggers I understand it, what you're saying. Right. that we believe this meets that criteria, they'll send it to the state farm or so they'll look at it and then we'll determine from there. Okay. It's, it's my understanding. The legislation you're talking about, is that the one that's basically transferring the enforcement side from uh, Department of Labor Licensing and Regulation to the state fire marshal? Is that the, that's the one we're talking about? So, you see, it's there now, Jim, but dollar basically is the enforcement arm. What they're, what they're trying to do is pull it out from under dollar and put it over to the state fire marshal's office. Well, I, again... Because they I, haven't codified. Dollar hasn't codified it, correct? I mean, they've done nothing <clears throat> really with it, so... Well, I, again, I think that there's... It's just... It's kind of... Confl it's, it's totally great to me. I mean, it just... It, is, it sounds as if the state has a law that says new construction, you've got to have sprinkler systems. It just says you And anything it else, it's... Whoever's looking at the work, I, I agree, and that's what I'm saying. It's a UFO. So right. I, I just think if 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 you think preemption's gonna would would, but I think that I think that, that the enforcement that they're talking about is on new construction. It's not on renovations. I think that's what it is. I think they're they're going after Worcester County, saying, "Look, it, you are going to put those sprinklers in, and if you don't, here's what's going to happen." And that's the enforcement portion of it. I think uh, Allegheny is the other one that's in correct. violation. Yeah, that's what it is. So. You know, again, I don't think either one of those bills has anything to do with enforcement on Renovation. renovations because they don't have a policy right now on renovations. And that's, that's what we're here for, to set policy. So I, know, I don't disagree, but I still would. I think well, like I said, we, yeah. we can table it. We yeah. can, I just think we need to get some more sure. definition to what the renovations are going to bring. Right. So, yeah. so if the state comes back and preempts us, so be it. But right. at least we'll have something down that right. we can say we did and this I, is I consistent. I just wanted you to understand that that was Absolutely. Part no, of it makes sense. What you table, said, that makes so. sense. But I just want to simplify this, this too also. And I, I understand the safety thing. Honest to God, I do. Uh, but, you know, you've got to weigh that with, with what people can afford. And, you know, for decades, you know, we've had no sprinklers. I mean, I don't, does anybody here got a sprinkler in their house? Phil, do you have any of yours? Yeah, no. sure. Yeah, so you're in development. So, you know, again, you know, I think on a renovation, I, I'm, I'm much more supportive of somebody going into an old neighborhood and renovating a house than I am for us to tear up another farm or, you know, more sprawl. So, you know, I think, it, and this doesn't encourage that, this only discourages that, and that's one of the things that is a concern. So we'll go ahead and table this, okay. and uh, we'll bring it up to the next meeting, and, and we'll go from there. Thank you. I appreciate all Thanks. the information. No, thank, you. thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. You know, it's, it's sad you think that the state would do something that would be cloudy. That would, you wouldn't really understand. <laughs> yeah, that. that's right. You, all right. Thank you all. <laughs> I'm surprised you find that surprising. Every, every now and then that happens, right? <laughs> uh, all right, commissioners. Item number 11 is a proclamation. Good Sportsman's Month, March 2020. Can... We're going to let the uh, umpire that wears glasses read this one. <laughs> okay. Strike sounds all over the place. <laughs> but if I wear glasses, I know my strikes are There you perfect. go. Okay. Um, proclamation, Good Sportsmanship Month, March 2020. Whereas Queen Anne's County recognizes the sports are a major social force that influences American culture and families, and whereas being involved in sports, including coaches, players, fans, and parents, should promote good sportsmanship, and foster the development of positive characteristics for physical fitness, positive personal growth, while making sure everyone has a safe and fun sports experience. 
and where sportsmanship promotes a strong sense of character, collaboration, and crucial life skills that can prepare players for future social interactions and challenges, and where sportsmanship can combat bullying and promote inclusion by providing a safe and healthy environment where players value respect, fairness, integrity, responsibility, and perseverance, and where sportsmanship also promotes and instills skills of encouragement, acceptance, focus, and the ability to make difficult decisions. And whereas fostering a commitment to these qualities on the playing field can prevent harassment, giving the umpires a hard time, reducing incidents and concussions and other injuries. Now, therefore, we, the County Commissioners of Queen Anne's County, do hereby proclaim March 2020 as Good Sportsmanship Month in Queen Anne's County and call upon all citizens to observe. Thank you very much. Amen. There you go. And we have another proclamation, uh, 20-18, that Commissioner Cocorino is going to read. Okay. Proclamation 20-18, whereas Queen Anne's County was declared a Character Counts community, and whereas all citizens have been called upon to embrace the six pillars of character and incorporate them in their daily activities and to model these traits of good character, and whereas character counts pillar of the month for March is responsibility, whereas responsibility can be defined as the state or fact of being responsible, answerable, or accountable for something within one's power, control, or management, Something you're required to do as an upstanding member of a community, one is responsible to a variety of groups over the years, family, school, community, and nation, and self. You must be responsible for your own actions, and whereas all citizens should take responsibility for their own health, physically and mentally, make healthy choices, exhibit self-control, and follow reasonable goals, and if needed, make the brave choice and ask for help. There are plenty of resources out there that can make life easier. And whereas all citizens will incorporate these values in their daily lives by making good choices and consider how those decisions affect others. And whereas all citizens will attempt to display responsibility to one's community by knowing the public issues, asking questions, getting involved and voting, and completing one's task. And whereas each citizen has a responsibility to continue the path of education, stay curious, learn new skills, and share that passion for learning with others. Now, therefore, we, the County Commissioners of Queen Anne's County, do hereby proclaim the Character Counts Pillar of the Month for March to be responsibility. Signed by all the commissioners. There we go. Thank you very read, much. Read with a lot of feeling. Did you like that? Yeah, it was really well done. And we have yet another proclamation. Uh, Women's History Month proclamation. Jack? It's your turn. Mary Margaret requested you personally. Yes. Is that what it was? All right. <laughs> I am honored. Um, so, Proclamation 2020, Women's History Month. Whereas since 1911, there has been a celebration of the enormous historic contributions made by women in and to society. And whereas finally, in 1975, International Women's Day was commented on by the United Nations, and two years later, in 1977, was officially recognized by that body. And whereas in 1980 in Santa Rosa, California, Molly Murphy McGregor, together with four other women, founded the National Women's History Project so they could present to the world the magnificent achievements of women throughout our nation. And whereas eight years later, in March of 1987, Congress declared the first official Women's History Month in the United States. 
and whereas women's lives and contributions to society are diminished when their efforts and achievements are not recognized and presented to the public, and whereas it is vital to be able to present women's stories, issues, hopes, and dreams for their communities and society in all the many ways possible to make them understood, and whereas women especially value inclusion for all women regardless of background, race, or ethnicity, or capabilities, and celebrate all accomplishments. And now, therefore, we, the County Commissioners of Queen Anne's County, salute the United States Congress for finally agreeing to the new National Women's History Museum that will open in approximately three years. And now we, therefore, the County Commissioners of Queen Anne's County, applaud Queen Anne's County's lead for a Maryland Museum of Women's History and the work underway here for it. And we, therefore, proclaim the month of March here in Queen Anne's County as Women's History Month in the year 2020, the year of the woman in celebration of the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment. Signed, your Queen Anne's County Commissioner. There we go. Thank you. Standing. Now we'll turn it back to you. All right. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, Commissioners. Item number 14 on page 71 is a request from uh, Boy Scout seeking Eagle Scout uh, uh, James Kajoris. He's going to begin his Eagle Scout project to replace a fence at the cemetery at the James Kerwin House down on 552, and he's looking for either funding, he wants to be the general contractor, or supplies and materials for that fence <laughs> project. So, I'm just a little disappointed he's not here to present to us. Should we hold it till next I, meeting? I, I think, think, I think we need to get him in here. See what kind of a salesman he is? Well, well, in, all it's fairness, all part of it. in all fairness, he probably didn't realize that it was going to be in our book for this particular meeting. We'll go with that. He we, should have known. We certainly can invite him to the I next I think we meeting. need to invite him in here so that he I mean, can. I, I didn't have if my he's chap- watching and he can get here before the close of business, we'll I, reconsider it. But I didn't get my chapstick, so there's a very good chance this young man wasn't even told. I, I move that we table this. Thank you. There you go. Thank you, Commissioners. Item 15 on page 73. This was from um, our last meeting, and this is uh, Budget Amendment CC21 from the Sheriff's Office. And he, he asked us to this, hold this. This is getting tabled again. So we can table this again. Yeah. He's yeah. out today. Okay. Item 16 on page 75 is Budget Amendment CC21. Excuse me. Uh, item 16 on page 75 is Budget Amendment CC23, providing additional budget authority for traffic counting, our traffic counting project on Kent Island. Uh, motion to approve CC23. Second. We have a motion and a second. Any discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor signify. Well, this is, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Good. No, is this for the is this for the t- uh, uh, like the O and M contract for it itself or we're this is additional uh, this is additional money for the traffic counters that are all throughout the not yeah. just Kent Island, right. all yeah. counties. It's O and M money though. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes. Okay. It is. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so it's a motion to approve CC23. Seeing no other discussion, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? So moved. Okay. Item 17 is Budget Amendment CC26, uh, MAHT grant, and this is for a new grant that we are receiving. Uh, no new county funds are involved. I move to approve Budget Amendment CC26. Second. We have a motion and a second. Any discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? So moved. All right, thank you, Commissioners. And one final item for your consideration tonight is a desk item, item 18. And this is a request for support by the uh, Shine Like Stars Daycare for a grant to rehabilitate a building so they can continue operations. Uh, this is down in the uh, Bill, I guess. Chester. Okay. Chester area. Chester. So, uh, 
let me first uh, give a little background of what this is so the public can understand this a little better. Uh, Christ Church, historic Christ Church in Stevensville for years and, and to this day actually has a little uh, early learning center called Shine Like Stars in that facility. Uh, that facility, uh, and I don't know, actually, Todd, do you know when that started? Was that 10 years ago? It was, uh, I mean, the, the, that the, RFP went out in our first year of our first of, of the 2011 Correct. So, so they've been in there since basically 2011, 2012, using it as a daycare. It's a historic Christ church. Uh, at that time, you know, you know, looking back, that wasn't a, a, such a good idea to put them into that facility. And they were paying rent, and the county was picking up a lot of the extra costs. And the whole while, the Historical Society of Stevensville and Kent Island wanted to use that facility for weddings and, and venues and, and to promote it as, as the historic building that it is. So approximately a year and a half ago, almost two years ago, we started the process of, of turning that property over to use it for what it should truly be as a historical site and use it for uh, tourism for Stevensville. It has taken approximately two years for Shine Like Stars to find another location. Uh, they are a small organization, and they found a location, and it's going to cost about $85,000 for them to, to move into this location, sprinklered, safety, uh, inspected by the state and the school fire marshal, the whole nine yards, and they are asking for help from the commissioners in the tune of a grant of $25,000. And this is the final chapter to the historic Christ Church issues that we've had over the last two years. And, you know, to get them moved out of that location into a safe location, a better environment, uh, the historic Christ Church can, can move forward with their plans and, because they, can, they can't apply for a grant until a for-profit business was moved out of there. So, you know, I, I'm going to make a motion that we, the commissioners, uh, support this grant of $25,000 with three, um, three strings tied to it. The first one would be they have to have a signed lease for the facility. The second one, they have to have a permit in hand to start construction. And the third one is, is a five-year phase for the grant, meaning that if they're only open for two years, they're going to owe the county $15,000. If they're open for the full five years, it is a grant, and they don't have to pay it back, and that's my motion. How about I'll string that. four that no, they never come back and ask us for anything? Well, again. this is the final. That's why I said I this is the final string. The final string, yes. Is that a fourth string? Yeah. That's so, a fourth string. Right. So we have a motion, and Chris Second. seconded it. So we have a motion and a second. Any further discussion? I'll also add to that with this new facility, uh, their hope is that they will be able to increase their enrollment mm -hmm hire on some more teachers. There is an economic development aspect of that. Um, there's not a lot of spaces for them to move to. No. Uh, they've been looking for a while. Right. And this is what sort of helps that goes on. There's a lot of families that depend on having that daycare there. So. And, and to that point, normally this would go through our budget cycle for our outside grants, our outside organizations. That we do grants every year from between three hundred and fifty dollars to $400,000. But it's time sensitive for them to get started now. So with the process and the construction so they'll be ready by the fall for to open up in a new location. Right. And that's why we're here today with this. So we have a motion and a second. Any other discussion? I just wanted to say that I think they should have gone through the process that the other businesses for profit in the county through the EDIF and 
Unfortunately, I know this is going to put something to bed, but it's, I just can't uh, support something where we're giving money to a for-profit business like that. Mm -hmm. so. I, I understand that. Okay. So, uh, any other discussion? So, uh, going clear back to 2011, when when uh, when we didn't have um, pre-K in all our schools, they were only only in our Title IX schools, and and it was a lottery basis. Um, so their kids weren't afforded the opportunity to attend a preschool that was affordable. Um, and, and I think Shine Like Stars was an answer to that problem, that it opened up a for-profit um, private um, a preschool, not to be mistaken as the daycare. The, the, these are certified teachers that work in this preschool. So at the time that this was enacted at the, the uh, Christ Church, was there was a huge need at that time, mm -hmm. uh, and it filled a need. Still does. I just wanted to make sure that mm -hmm. that was clarified. Mm -hmm. Any other discussion? All right, seeing none. All those in favor signify, signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Aye. Four to one. Thank you very much. All right. Commissioners, that concludes our desk items tonight. We can move into presentations, okay. if you like. Uh, yep. If you want to turn to tab six. I'd like to ask our uh, Dr. Josie. It's hold. Excuse me. Could we do um, Mr. DeShields first, please? Oh, certainly. Thank you. Yeah, yeah sure. We will. Um, if you want to turn to uh, tab six, item two, we have a years of service recognition for Mr. Maurice DeShield. He's from our liquor board. So, Maurice, when you come on up, and your uh, fellow liquor board members. And waiting patiently here all night so we can do that. Where's, where's the statement? Uh, it's like just to just here. present this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's fine. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. That's right. All right, folks. Uh, this award is being given for 25 plus years of service award for the liquor board, and there's no harder job than the liquor board. <laughs> <laughs> Look at those tattered gentlemen back there. A lot of practice. Absolutely. <laughs> anyway. Our liquor board, yeah. it was uh, Mrs. Walls who played the organ in Centerville yeah. Church. Yeah. And we were going there, and I looked at her, and I said, at that time, they got somebody on this board and knows how to drink rather than yeah. playing the organ. <laughs> <laughs> Now the only sane person is leaving. Anyway, uh, we hereby express our sincere appreciation of Maurice D. Dashiell for your loyalty, diligence, and outstanding performance during your tenure with the Queen Anne's County Liquor Board by the Queen Anne's County Commissioners, and we do so thank you, sir. And with thank that, you. Mr. DeShields, I think it's fair to say that anybody that lives in this community that served 25 years on any board is a hero. Well, let me uh, say a few words here. Absolutely. 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 Well, it was a pleasure for me to serve 30 plus years on the liquor board. Uh, I'd like to thank this body of county officials and the past county officials for reappointing me. Uh, maybe they couldn't get anybody else, I don't know. <laughs> uh, 
you have a very capable liquor board now. The first woman uh, chairperson is uh, George Jones and the three scooch. I mean, <laughs> and thanks to uh, Kathy Maxwell and uh, Jeff, they're the father of the liquor board. When they hold the liquor board together, we have a new, or you all have a new liquor inspector. I'm sorry I forgot your name. It's Tom. Thank you. Uh, I hope everybody gives me support to him, and I'm confident that he'll do a good job. So, thank you again. The worst time to quit is when I got two pretty women on the board and I had to stop. Well, we're good on the pictures because I think that Joyce, you want to come up. Well, we'll let, you want to, you have something you want to read or talk? Well, no, I just want to say that um, I had the pleasure of serving with Commissioner Deschel for the past 30 months, and that was five months longer than he anticipated on serving. But when I became chair, I told him what I wanted to accomplish, which was to hire a new liquor inspector and to publish the long overdue rules and regulations, which we did. He came, it was hard for all of us to get to so many meetings. It was even harder for him. And we dedicated the rules and regulations to Maurice. So I just want to thank you. presentation if you like as well it's going to be a all right so next we have uh, dr. Ciatola with his department of health update health services come on up dr. Ciatola welcome good evening good evening this is for your semi-annual report for the Department of Health Queen Anne County I believe all of you have received the annual, semi-annual report, and I think that we are certainly moving forward in Queen Anne County as far as health department activities, and I can say with a certain degree of relief as far as our opioid issues, we have had no deaths to this point mm. in Queen Anne County for this year. Awesome. We have had, to date, 10 overdoses but we have not had any fatal overdoses in this county. Mm. Now, in your packet, I did supply you with the Robert Wood Johnson statistics of the health status of Queen Anne County. <laughs> and as far as the health outcomes rating <coughs> for the overall counties in Maryland, 
Queen Anne County rates seventh. Where were we last year? One of the healthiest counties in the state. And as you can see with the statistics that we are above the state average in most of our categories as far as health activities, we are a little bit higher in our alcohol use as well as our cigarette. And we are actively working with our alcohol and addictions program as well as the cigarette restitution fund to address those issues. As you all have known, we have put out a grant and an RFP for our WIC program, the mobile WIC van, which is currently being constructed by Special Ops and our OpTech in, in Stevensville in the business park. Tech Ops. Tech Ops. Tech, Tech Ops. Ops. Special Ops. So too many uh, SWAT team members. You're having flashbacks. Don't uh, <laughs> That van will allow us to now service our WIC community with the new mothers and infants with home visits instead of having to come to different locations in the county. This will be very advantageous for both Settlersville and Crumpton and Northern Queen Anne County. As far as mobile integrated health is concerned, <clears throat> excuse me, we have a new grant to look at diabetes. We are starting the state pilot for diabetic monitoring with the A1C, and we will plan to use that as a testing tool to help improve and improve the overall outcome of diabetics with type 2 diabetes and significantly, hopefully, reduce the morbidity and mortality. That is being funded through a $40,000 grant, which we are sending our paramedics and our MIC nurses for education in diabetic management, consultation, food management, exercise, and health activities. Now, gentlemen, to the topic at hand, <laughs> COVID-19. Well, Let's say the governor declared a state of emergency, and we are dealing with a situation now where we have nine confirmed COVID cases in Maryland. We just got, while we're sitting here, just got notification that there's another case in Montgomery County. I can, I can say with clarity that we have no confirmed COVID-19 cases in Queen Anne County. We have had two individuals, persons under investigation in this county over the last week and a half. The first case came back negative. We are waiting pending results from the second case, who is currently hospitalized. We have no evidence of community transmission in this county. However, the state is ramped up to a significant degree at this point that I just received notice that the, that the governor has put the state on a level two notification for pandemic, which means he is limiting out-of-state travel. He is recommending social distancing, also transitioning to telework for those facilities and agencies in the state that can do telework. Now, what does that mean for us here in Queen Anne County? What we have done, and I'm gonna call up Beverly Churchill, and Scott Haas to let you know what we have done in the last week. So I just got notification from my son's college that they're... I'm going into... Oh, you get... Okay. You got the same notification. We had a conference call today at 3 o'clock with MEMA. At that time, the governor was giving a press conference. 
And in that press conference, and after discussion, reading the results of that press conference, Dr. Perman, who is the chancellor of the University of System of Colleges, has put out an order that the colleges are closing this week. They're closing Thursday and Friday. They were going on spring break. They have extended the spring break till April 4th. They are not shutting down the campuses, but they are recommending that all students stay out until April 4th. What this will do is with the period of spring break and the amount of travel, will give that extra two weeks to try and monitor this situation. Today at noon, after consultation with department heads in the county, I have placed us under policy, county policy 30604. And that policy is specifically for influenza outbreak policy. We are at a level one, which is surveillance. If we start to get cases, we will then gradually go to a level two and then a level three if it becomes truly epidemic in the county. What disturbs me the most is that we're sitting here with a truly recognized pandemic with this coronavirus, and the World Health Organization has yet to identify it as a pandemic. It is on every continent except Antarctica. By definition, it is a pandemic. Now, where we stand with this? Why all the anxiety, the drastic measures being taken as far as travel and recommendations? Some of this is due to the fact that this is a coronavirus that no one has been experiencing, seen, or know what to do with. There is no treatment at this point. There is no vaccine for this virus. The problem with this virus is it's a respiratory virus. It is a lower respiratory virus, which means that it truly causes lung infiltration. Symptomatology starts off with low-grade fever and a dry cough, and then difficulty <coughs> breathing. Having looked at the studies in Italy, where Italy, as you know, has gone on a total country lockdown. No in, no out. What is occurring is that these patients, even though they may have mild symptomatology, when you check their pulse oximetry, their O2 concentration, patients are hypoxic. So it is affecting the transfer of oxygen into the bloodstream because of the involvement, the inflammatory involvement in the lung tissue, specifically the smaller areas, the alveoli. Thankfully, we have not had any significant surrounding areas infected. But what at this point in time, I've asked Beverly to come in. We've had an EOC activation or meeting with department heads to go over what we need to do. The recommendations at this point in time are the same precautions we take for flu, influenza. Wash your hands, hand sanitizers, Keep your hands away from your face. And also, we're going to try and improve some social distancing. I think we need to really be careful about hugging, handshakes, and start pulling back a little bit from the constant contact. Because what has been determined, this coronavirus, COVID-19, is more contagious than influenza. And I think that's why you're seeing the rapid increase in the spread of this. And as we have tests available now, 
Because remember, we did not have the testing capability in this state with the Department of Health until the latter part of last week. All of the testing had to be sent to the CDC in Atlanta, and there were a limited number of test kits. Hopefully, the state is able to procure more test kits. I have a meeting tomorrow with all the health officers in the state with the deputy health officer and other state officials. I also have a meeting tomorrow at the UMS corporate board determining what the university medical system is going to be doing. They did put in to effect this evening a policy regarding <coughs> visitation at the hospitals and limited contact. The state has also put out recommendations limited visitation to nursing homes and assisted living facilities. Because as we have seen with what happened in Spokane, Washington, it is the nursing home that has had the highest number of infections as well as fatalities. Now, let's talk about what are the risks with this. What we have seen is in the younger population, 50 and under. 50? 50 and under. 50, okay. Okay? It's younger. Young. Young. Just uh, say that again. 50 and under. <laughs> I thought you said 60 and, and under, didn't you? <laughs> It may present as a mild respiratory or a mild cold or a mild influenza. You don't have the body aches with this one. That's the difference between type A and type B flu. What you do have, there was a low-grade fever, 100.4. You have a dry cough, and you have some respiratory, maybe some wheezing, maybe some shortness of breath. However, when you start going up the age train, and when we get to, let's say, 75 and older and 80, that's where we're seeing a much higher rate of potential fatality. The reason being is there's sometimes there is so many comorbidities, heart disease, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, diabetes, immunocompromised individuals, those with cancer or who have had cancer treatment are at higher risk despite your age. So... This is something that is changing not only daily, hourly, folks. We're monitoring it. We're ready for it as best as we can be. We started in January getting the supplies we need for our EMS and our public health as far as N95 mask, surgical mask, pappers, PPE gear, gowns, gloves, face shields. Working with Beverly, we've come up with the policy, with the influenza outbreak policy for the county, which was basically put into effect when we had H1N1. But this is a policy that will let us not only monitor influenza-like illnesses across the board as far as county employees. I've talked to Dr. Kane tonight from the Board of Ed about recommendations for out-of-state travel, and I think that we are advising against any out-of-state travel for our schools as well as our county employees because of the fact that with the explosion of cases that is being noted around us, if you look at what happened in New York and with the National Guard quarantining that entire area of high outbreak, I think that the risk increased the more we're traveling. Certainly overseas travel to the endemic areas, the ones that CDC have identified as level three, is again a risk. Those individuals that have come back from those areas or those cruise ships that have been infected, we are recommending self-monitoring 
or isolation for at least 14 days. By self-monitoring, watch for a fever, watch for a cough, watch for sore throat. Questions? Yeah. um, How much information are you getting from Italy? I mean, statistics-wise, you said 50 and younger. I mean, I, I mean, I think a lot of uh, anxiety we, we're having in our community are parents of, of children. And, you know, if, if there's some kind of reassurance you can give them. That the reassurance I can give as far as our younger school-age population, mm-hmm. those that do not have comorbidities with other illnesses are at lower risk for any major health complications. Okay. I'm not going to say that they Correct. aren't going to get it. I understand. But as far as morbidity and mortality, mm-hmm. there is very minimal risk at, from what the evidence shows at this time. That's one of the confusing things about this. This is not hitting the children. It's hitting the 20 and up and, and then the older population. Right. But can they Looking still be- at Italy would be we will have more accurate current information looking at Italy. I just reviewed with several of the EMS jurisdictional medical directors the New England Journal of Medicine gave a very good article about categories risk as we go up the age tree, as well as what looking at comorbidities. For for kids, the less chance of, of a bad result, but can they they can still contract it. They could and they could spread it around. So okay. kids also, yeah. it, if there are groups that in the county that have kids, they're planning travel somewhere. Is that something that they should be reconsidering at this point? Absolutely. The fact that the governor has put out. The state restriction on right. state employees traveling out of state, I think, speaks volumes to what's – because what I worry about is, as just you just said, let's say an 8-year-old or 9-year-old mm-hmm. gets infected. Then they go see their grandparents. Yeah, right. and they don't know they're infected. They grandma. And, right. and the problem is the incubation period is anywhere from 5 to 7 days. They can be infectious prior to their onset of symptoms. Now, the other thing that has come out, and this I checked with Dr. Sharpstein at Hopkins, Bloomberg School of Public Health, they're looking at the possibility this virus survives on the surface for nine to, five to nine days. Wow. That, I mean, influenza may be 12 hours on a surface. So what I'm recommending, 70% alcohol cleaning. We're talking about increasing the cleaning of the county buildings, school buildings, and we will be meeting month or weekly Monday, 11 o'clock, with all department heads in the county. And we also have a weekly call on Thursdays at 2 o'clock with all of our allied agencies through the EOC. How do you, how do you intend to protect our first responders in, with an incubation period of 14 days? I mean, to me, that would be a concern if, if, God forbid, one of them became ill and did not know it, and we, now they're coming in contact. Back in January, we started a PUI, person under investigation, criteria on our 911 call system so that we can identify those that call in on 911 who a potential case is. In that case, the crews will be donned in PPE to prevent or limit that potential exposure. I'm not going to say that it can't occur because you could get a sick call, not a respiratory call, not knowing that that patient truly has the COVID-19, that's a possibility. So in, in case in point, that's what I was asking about Italy. What are you hearing from the doctors and the nursing staffs there that, uh, you know, that are, are handling the sick? Well, 
we haven't seen the results of that so much as what we've seen out of China. Mm-hmm. China, the healthcare workers and the first responders significantly were infected after exposure to those patients. I don't. I have difficulty trusting the information coming out right. of China because it, it has not been as forthright as we would expect. I think that we are keeping a close eye on this as far as our health care providers are concerned. The hospitals are majorly concerned about this. They are watching this and monitoring it and practicing good, safe PPE practices. So a question uh, for human resources. So what are we what are we doing as far as uh, are we changing daily operations as far as uh, our county employees and 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 what their responsibilities are nothing's changed they're getting up they're still coming to work no they're still coming to work right now we are monitoring um any putty that has a uh, flu-like symptoms is reporting out we're monitoring that now starting tomorrow on a daily basis those reports will go to the the health department so we can see if our trend is going up or staying flat or going down um, we also have encouraged people, if they have flu-like symptoms, to stay home. If they have a fever greater than 100, shortness of breath, cough, um, as you already heard. Uh, and we don't certainly want somebody to come to work with that fever and infect their coworkers. Also, we have reminded people the protocol for traveling, um, following the CDC guidelines, if they've traveled to one of these endemic areas, the 14-day stay-at-home. Um, also, even if they traveled to some other area, to self-monitor for um, signs and symptoms. So we are sharing all that information with our directors. We're sharing it out to the employees. as, as the, And I can vouch for what Dr. C had said. It is changing pretty much hourly um, as we're getting the information and trying to get something cohesive out to the employees. So, Dr. C, I, I guess my question is, is we're, I, I'm not so worried about the, us here, that we're here now, but what worries me is we have 75% of our citizens travel out of county every day to make their livings, and I think that's where we run a bigger risk than anything else um, because people are going all over the state into the areas we're infected, Montgomery County, Howard County, PG County. So, I mean, at what point, as a bedroom community, we're definitely at a higher level of risk to have it come home here and then settle in. So, I mean, I guess everybody should be aware of that, that or be aware of your surroundings and what's going on in your surroundings in terms That's of That's why I said this. you really have to ramp up your standard flu precautions, hand washing, cover yourself if you're coughing or sneezing, and if you do get sick, stay home. I mean, you we, know, we have the corridor. From New York, like so many. I mean, how many cars have we seen well, in New York? Exactly. I mean, you look Stuff's where we're at. Cracker, we're not in a good stuff's spot. in the Cracker Barrel and has lunch and yikes. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're kind of in the we're kind of in it's the. It's good that the government, though. There are a lot of these folks that that Commissioner Jack had mentioned, you know, work for the government. Um, so it's comforting to know that the government's ready to say, all right, you know, if you're at all capable of working from home, if you're not essential personnel, that they're ready to say you're going to work from home. Did put the state on level two yeah. just this evening. So I'd like to remark that I think if you, in these discussions, what you hear is that for weeks we have been trying to prepare for this. And that thanks to the extremely good work of Dr. Ciatella, EMS, and HR, I think we've done everything we can understand should be done. And that we didn't get behind the eight ball, as we said in the last meeting. Uh, I'd be certainly interested in anybody's review of 
what you think the outlook of this getting widespread because I mean it's a very interesting situation in which it's a much much more infectious disease than we've seen before but usually flus are taken out by warm weather and so those two intersections are going to come together in the next month we're going to find out which horse runs the race this is a it's going to be absolutely uh, I don't even know what to say but maybe not a total health crisis, but it certainly is going to be an economic crisis if we wind up with everybody in lockdown and restaurants and malls and so on. So this whole thing is of the highest consequence, and I want to thank you guys for doing a very good job. Do you, do you have the test kits now? No. No? Would you? That's a bad question. <laughs> you mean that's a sore subject? That is <laughs> I'm on public record, so I'll say it right now. We have received one kit today from the Department of Health lab. We are to hold on to it in case we have to deal with a PUI, a person under investigation. The problem is none of our staff has been trained according to the CDC recommendations of how to package this and how to ship it. And that's one of the reasons I'm in Baltimore tomorrow. So is it is it something you have to shift to the, ship to the CDC, or is it somewhere statewide we can State. do it? State. Okay. Now, you do have commercial labs getting ready to come on board, both Quest mm-hmm. and LabCorp. Now, the way it stands now, up to this point in time, the state had to approve the testing of any individual. You had to get Mother May I mm. from the state. A physician in his office can order the test and not have to get permission from MDH, but it can be done in a commercial lab. The problem with the physician's offices, and I think everybody needs to be aware of this, is they don't have the level of PPE, they don't have the the training to do the appropriate nasopharyngeal and posterior pharynx swabbing or the appropriate swab and medium to test these. I can't blame the private physicians when they get a call and say go to the health department or call the health department because what we're doing is making a direct contact with the ED and we're not taking these patients to the emergency room. We're taking them in through another way with the infectious disease staff at the hospital. They will do the test. We will then curry it to Baltimore to get it evaluated. Department of, Ed- department of Health specifically their lab, is running two series of test kit evaluations, 11 o'clock, 2 o'clock. We hope to be able to get results within 24 hours, but on our last, it took over 72. So there are still some kinks in the state system, and this is something that everybody is trying to work with and trying to smooth out the bumps. What about the, uh, the Nesbitt Road? Stand, stand alone. I mean, do they have kits or no? I mean, somebody goes there because they're feeling sick and they're coughing and walking in. We are having, right now, they are not an approved destination for our 911 crews that are transporting a PUI. Right, but because, I'm talking about just a walk-in. Somebody gets in a car, I'm well, taking you to the emergency that's the thing. If they walk in, and I've been in conversations with Mary Alice at the, host- mm-hmm. at the freestanding, mm-hmm. I'm also going to have a conversation with Dr. Wong, and see what we can do. They have the ways to test for 
viral infection, but they don't have all of the swabbing that's needed for the COVID-19. So let me ask a question. If somebody felt they had symptoms, would health department recommend they go to one? They call the health department or they call their family physician and identify and go through the screening test questions to know if you're a higher risk to even complete the test and go forward. You've got to meet a certain degree of criteria for us to warrant you as an individual who needs to have the test. So call your physician if you have suspicions. Do not feel well. Just don't show up at their office. Yeah, Same see, that's, that's going to be the, an that's, issue. That's that, the, the emergency room, your office. I, I mean, anywhere anybody me. walks in and they're coughing, everybody's sitting in there that doesn't have any Monday protection morning, on at all. Monday morning, we had three people show up. We had three other people call. We had six calls within 45 minutes after opening the doors, 8 o'clock Monday morning. Mm-hmm. We will deal with it. Yeah. Call us. Yeah. I mean, and One thing I noticed is in your health factors here in your, in your publication, primary care physicians... Look at that percentage. That is, it's staggering. You know, the, Maryland has basically every 1,100 people in the state of Maryland is a physician. Queen Anne's County, we're almost 2,600. Yeah, it's terrible. I mean, we, we are woefully low. We have, we have significant deficiencies yeah. in primary care access, period. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of that speaks to the fact that people, when they're over the bridge, are still have their doctors over the bridge, too, because I know I a lot, think a lot of it just because we do. just don't have a lot of doctors that are practicing here in Queen Anne's County. But, you, but you're getting the service somewhere, you know what I mean? If you've got a primary care, you're getting it. And I just, I mean, I know probably a dozen people right now can name that, that wherever they travel to work, they have their physicians within a close distance to work. You know, right so across the street from my office. Yeah, so but I, has the state even considered, you know, if, if, for instance, a doctor came up with some finding, that that, that individual would go to a drugstore and get a medication, considering that they might be, how the hell is that going to work? It's evolving. Oh, thank you. Any other questions? Oh, I'm sure there will be tomorrow. Many. Can this this be found on the county website or your website? Okay. But yes to which one? Our website has it. Okay. We can which is we can get it put on the county website. Which is the Queen Anne's County Department of Health. Health. Yeah, we we really do want to thank all of you for the hours that have gone Mm -hmm. into this. In any opportunity you get for more information, I think that's you know the, the false the false information that gets out there, or you know that's some. Why, of that's why I'm very cautious about what we're putting out on social media. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to put out what is clear, current, accurate data, right, and not some of the questionable stuff. <laughs> and we are we're staying on top of this with both our social media and staying in close contact with the county administrator. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the information the public needs to know, even if they do get sick. What, what's the protocol? Where to go? I think a lot of people just don't know that. So, you know, just like you so, said, be the vigilant. the thing is, without the overabundance of test kits, mm-hmm. flooding the area in to test everybody is really right. not capable Correct. of that. Right. So that's why the state is being very selective in who they limit doing the COVID-19 screening. So, stay sure. tuned. Thank you. Stay Thank tuned. you. Thank you, stay guys. Thanks, Scott. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. All right, commissioners. Now we have uh, Susan Coppage, director of our 
Williams County Social Services and her advisory board, and Allison Davis, coming on, board member, for their update. Good evening. Mm -hmm. um, are we able to show this slide? Should be on there. It's what we know. Messages don't get sick. Messages don't get sick. I would love to see it probably every day for the last couple of weeks wow. about this. And I know it's late in the evening, so we'll try to roll through this. No, no, no. Uh, important stuff going on. Because the governor doesn't want you moving yeah, no, the state, so they covered that, and he was not Yep, there you go. Uh, are you going to control it, or? No, we're for, no you guys are going to have to do it. So that's not for free. That's because, what? Yeah, they've always had. So I said, I called Shore and she told him, I said, you guys have better get together about a million. Two drugs you need are free. Okay. Okay, well, thank you for um, having us here. Um, I just wanted to um, provide an update uh, of, of Okay, um, anyway, thanks for having me here. Um, I'm Allison Davis. I'm the chair of the Queen Anne's um, County Advisory Board for the Department of Social Services. What I do in my spare time when I'm not advocating for broadband. Um, and uh, with me is Susan Coppedge, director of the agency, um, with whom uh, the board works very closely. And we just wanted to give you an update of uh, what we're doing, um, why we're doing it, and uh, just kind of let you know the good things that are happening uh, at the department. So, oops, it's quite, it's touchy. Yeah, apparently. Okay. There you go. So, um, so here I wanted to talk about. Um, uh, you all are very familiar with the Department of Social Services, but um, we kind of come at it from a different uh, perspective, being from the community. And um, I just wanted to point out that this is a very uh, a department, a very broad mandate, um, number of disparate funding streams, federal, state, county. Um, and one of the things that when I came on board, I sort of um, perceived is that the name itself, Department of Social Services, is, has such a... Um, it's just not a great name <laughs> because it's, it implies that it's just you're just providing things to people, um, handouts, those sorts of things, and that's just not what's going on. And so we like to think of it more of um, fostering independence, keeping families together, focusing on people and individuals and independence. So um, that's one thing that if you get nothing else from this presentation, I want to make sure that, um, that that's what Susan and her staff try to do every day. Um, so what do they do? They provide vulnerable individuals and families support toward independence. Um, as you know, this is a variety of different things, food, um, cash assistance, child support, health insurance, protective services for children and adults, in-home services, foster care. Um, and it's just a huge array of things with, with a really pretty sparse staff. Um, they just do a ton. Um, and one of the things that makes this work, and, and Susan in particular, I, I'm, I'm her biggest fan, um, is that they're very collaborative with the community. Um, and uh, as a board, we try to take that even further by um, speaking with our own constituencies. Um, so uh, one thing I wanted to point out as an example is the care center, the um, child... Child Advocacy Center? Child... 
child, child abuse, abuse response and evaluation child abuse center. Response and <laughs> yeah. So the one on Lawyers Row, um, that's a perfect example of where you have a whole bunch of people, professionals coming together in the support of a child to minimize um, repeated trauma um, for an individual child. So she, she, he or she has to tell their story once. There's attorneys, social service workers, mental health professionals, um, law enforcement, law enforcement education, and they all come together in a beautiful, I don't want to glamorize it, but a beautiful residential setting to take care of this child. It's very person-centric. And I think really everything that this, this department does is aiming to be uh, person-centric. Um, so as a board, we try to promote what they do and, um, uh, and support them. So this is, this is us. Um, we are a variety of different types of people. We do have a couple social, um, one social worker on the board, but we also have nurses, we have someone from the um, religious community, um, farm owner, all these different, uh, electrician Jack is our, um, our uh, commissioner member. Um, and the reason that's important is because we come at this from um, a variety, of, we, we don't know this because it's not what we do, but we all know people that need services and we all know people that benefit from this. And so it's, it's important for us to learn and be able to, to talk to our own communities and, um, and the people that we connect with to uh, you know, both promote the value of what they do, but also connect people with services that they need that they may not know about. Um, so um, how we do that, we accompany DSS staff at um, outreach events, such as Family Fun Day, um, which is in uh, May, I think, is that June? June. 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 Um, Queen Anne's County Fair. We volunteer at the um, Haven Ministries Homeless Shelter. That's not directly supported by DSS, but it's one organization that DSS partners extensively with, which is a fantastic, another fantastic collaboration because they're a very strong and active uh, organization. Um, as well as communicate with our neighbors and, um, and co-workers about uh, what they do. Second thing, uh, which I'll spend more time on in a minute, is fill spending gaps. Um, and just hold that thought for a second. Um, we support and collaborate with DSS staff as above. Um, we do have one official duty to evaluate Susan. And uh, so we write a letter um, for uh, the state. She's a state employee. Um, and that's, we do that very with careful consideration. We interview all of her um, direct reports. We talk to the staff. We get her own self-comments um, and put together a um, pretty substantive uh, evaluation um, for her performance. And that's actually a lot of fun. You know, she's a good man. Um, and then we also um, advocate uh, on behalf of we advocate for the state on legislative matters that are of importance to social services concerns. And from here, um, we really take the lead of Susan um, and the state-level staff um, to speak up when needed. We don't try to be annoying. We, we try to provide support in ways that um, is helpful without uh, you know, over-arguing. Um, over um, and then finally, we are one of, um, there are uh, advisory boards for each county, and so um, there's an overall uh, Maryland Association of Social Services Board's um, overarching group, and they hold a conference every October that we go to, several of us go to, um, to share experiences and talk about lessons learned, et cetera. So again, our overarching goal is to support um, Susan and her staff to keep families together.
Okay, so the Family Preservation Fund is the money that is provided generously uh, by the county. Um, it's housed within, it's, it's a 501c um, uh, within the state uh, um, MASSB. Um, but this is a fairly broadly described um, mission for use of this fund. Um, and what it's meant to do is fill gaps. So there, while there are a lot of spending um, funding streams, like I said, federal, state, county, there are a lot of things that fall between the cracks, and it's a really fantastic way for us to be able to fill these gaps. So I give you a couple of examples here, and then I'll tell you a quick story of, of one really great example. Um, uh, driving lessons uh, provide independence, enable people to, to tra um, travel to work. Um, materials for adult, vulnerable adults. Um, one year, actually, we were going to... Uh, um, instead of doing Christmas for kids, we were going to do Christmas for adults. And um, we asked Susan's staff, you know, what could, can we provide gifts for these folks? What can we, you know, we wanted to do something special. And they said resoundingly, we, we can't, we don't want gifts. We just want stuff we need to live. We want diapers. We want, um, you know, insure things, household products. So there, there's a real need for this stuff that we're filling. And it's, um, it's really quite, um, I, I feel quite proud that we're able to, to help that way. Also, larger things, mattresses and electric lift chair. Um, summer camps, something that obviously serves children, but anyone who has kids knows that they serve adults, too, because adults need to go to work. Um, summer camps are a great opportunity for kids to get experience, um, get, you know, help with their self-esteem, um, interact with the outdoors, but um, obviously for working parents, you know, you can't work if your kid is at home with unsupervised. So, um, and they're expensive, so a lot of people, uh, these are out of reach. Um, burial assistance, this is a very somber thing. Can you imagine not being able to bury a family member? Um, this is something that we've had frequent requests for and have been able to, um, for, for not a whole lot of money, you know, give some dignity to, to people and families. Um, and then finally, I just wanted Susan to tell a quick story about a family um, uh, that we are providing a short-term rent mortgage assistance so that they can get back on their feet and if you wouldn't mind just quickly describing the scenario. So we had a parent that came in that um, was looking for some supportive services. She wasn't even sure what she was looking for. She just knew that um, she needed some help. And uh, her, she, her husband had just been diagnosed with cancer. They have children. Um, and she wasn't really sure how she was going to make ends meet. And so what the uh, board was able to do was to fund half of her mortgage for three months, which allowed, because obviously the father wasn't working and mom wasn't working either because she was staying home to c take care of the father, and they didn't have a way to pay their mortgage. So she wasn't destitute in that she didn't have any funds. She just needed some support. So we were able to pay for three months half her mortgage, um, which really allowed her to spend the money where she needed to and to bridge that gap that my agency would have never been able to fund because she wasn't being evicted um, or foreclosed on. Um, though she wasn't eligible for our services because she hadn't been out of work long enough, those kinds of things that made her ineligible for services but made this board fund essential. Yeah, and so it's, it's really prevention, you know, keeping people from having to get these services because um, no one wants, wants to have to do that. So thank you, Susan. Um, so anyway, I wanted to thank you all for your support and just to, to let you know that we're, we're really good stewards of this money and we monitor it very carefully. Um, every 
month, we go through what we spend and decide, and everything that comes through is recommended. Um, Susan and her staff have a process for needs that come about. They go to Susan if it's inappropriate or not relevant. It dies there, and um, if it is relevant, then we talk about it as a board, we vote, and we provide the money. And one of the things we've really tried to do is talk to our staff about this so that they're recognizing these aren't things that we would normally be able to pay for, but they're still bringing them to us because we might be able to find the money. Yeah. So um, it's approximately um, rounds out to about $10,000 a year, and right here I show you three years of, of spending that's – give or take 10000 because it depends when the money comes in and out. But you'll note two things. Um, the, the main spending is vulnerable children and vulnerable adults. Um, and what's really interesting about this, uh, this data is that um, Queen Anne's County is an old-ish county. Um, the, the median age here is 44. Um, and if you know the United States, the, 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 the oldest state is Maine, and the median age is 44. So we have an older state. Um, uh, and that's well, a worry. That's a worry for coronavirus, but it's also um, interesting because in terms of um, these dedicated funds, there are uh, social services does not really have dedicated funding to support these people, and we have a lot of them. So it's what we're p planning to do in the coming years is to try to be as strategic as possible in getting staff to identify needs in uh, the adult population. Um, okay. So future plans, um, one of the things that's, um, I don't know if Susan would call it exciting, but it's um, an interesting um, idea is they're transitioning to what's called a common customer. And this is something that I think every social services worker aims to do to begin with, to think about the person as a whole, the family as a whole. But it's hard to do when you have funding streams that say, pay for this, pay for that, pay for this trying to um, have a conceptual uh, culture shift to thinking about the person as a whole, but um, making that possible through a um, computer system that allows this to be managed that way. You need tools to be able to do it versus just wanting to be able to do it. So um, in any case, that is coming um, down the pike, and uh, we're going to try to do what we can to support Susan's staff in, in this. I'm not sure that we can do much, but... Um, the way that we've been approaching uh, filling gaps, I think, is something that will um, be even more important that people think about these extra funds as a way to make sure that uh, the customer is, is the center of everything. The common customer is really about us asking more questions so that we're identifying things earlier and that we're able to intervene sooner, um, especially around we ha we do have different funding streams, so we're trying to make sure that we're not sending people from one place to the other. Yeah, and so, but you know, trending toward that more prevention thinking, like what might you need, what you know, is is hopefully um, going to be great. Um, also, we are um, developing our the board is developing a strategic plan. Yes, that is us. And um, we are going to try to model that after the uh, department's strategic plan. Um, just to try to be aligned and to be uh, effective at what we do um, and continue to advocate for families um, wherever and whenever we can. So um, thank you for your attention um, and for your support. And I just wanted to let you know that they're Especially doing it. for the support. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no lie. <laughs> that keeps but, us going. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, but it's our joy to be able to work with Susan and her staff um, to, for, for a really, really important purpose in this community. So. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're sticking with us tonight. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Great presentation. Thank you. 
All right, commissioners, we have a few pieces of legislation. We want to turn to tab number seven, item three. We have uh, ordinance, county ordinance 20-03, the timing and development of impact fee collection and assignment of an administrative fee for the processing of deferred impact fee payments in Queen Anne's County. And that can be introduced. If you have any questions, I see. I'll introduce that one. Vivian here. All right. All right. Then we have a. You two stayed here all night for that. No, they got the next two. Oh, they got okay. We got all a right. few more. We got okay. I was going to say, whoa, that was brutal. Yeah, we got four citizen-sponsored text amendments. Each year, we allow citizens to sponsor text amendments. Uh, 2004, 2005, 2006, 2007. And Amy Mordock is here to explain those, but they are, I think we have some, there's a series of motions for those, for each one of those. So, you have any Were questions on any of those? Introduce them. You introduced all of them, huh? Well, no, just You're a good man. All right, so we're going to, going to ask them any questions about them. They sat here all night through all this. Oh, they found they find our meetings very entertaining. Is that what it was? Yes. Yeah, I can tell. Well, just for the public, let's explain with the citizen introduced ones. Okay. It'll go to planning and zoning for review and input. Right? Come on. Since so, you sat there, at least, at, at, at least explain the process. That way, because it's a year apart, so. Thank you. I feel like I've accomplished something. There you <laughs> go. <laughs> so for the television audience. Yeah, feel like Phil doesn't know and explain the process. Well, everybody who you are. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm Amy Mordock. I'm the principal planner in the planning and zoning department. And this is the time of year where citizen-sponsored map and text amendments are accepted. They're accepted for the first 10 business days of the month of February. We did not receive any applications for map amendments, but you did receive four applications for zoning text amendments. Um, the process is the um, applications are submitted to your board, and then those applications come back to the planning and zoning department to be vetted by the planning commission. They will review. Uh, all of the applications for consistency with uh, Chapter 18, the, sub, um, the land use article with the um, comprehensive plan, and also for consistency with the state land use article. You will receive those recommendations uh, for each amendment. They will come back to you for um, scheduling of a public hearing. You'll hold a public hearing and then take a vote. Um, and that is basically the same process that you would follow also for the commissioner-introduced legislation, which is the impact fee timing of collection of fees. That's perfect. perfect. <laughs> Thank you. You're Thank you very much, Amy. Thank you. Thanks, Amy. Thanks, Vivian. All right. All right. Commissioners, that brings us to our second pressing public comment period. There's anybody that wants to. Does anybody want to speak? No. So moving on to round table. Let's see. Where did we start last time? We well, started with Jack last time. Started with Jack. So we'll start with. I got you back, bro. Me? Yes. All right. Oh, great one. Fire away. All right. Well, earlier we had a, uh, a scout uh, application for some assistance with the scout project. And I just want to, any other scouts out there or Eagle Scouts thinking about doing your project and if you're having um, difficulties coming up with ideas, feel free to call us because there are a lot of different 
community organizations out there that need assistance, and we can connect you to those other organizations. <laughs> no, they can't do your front yard. <laughs> it serves a public purpose, Phil, for my yard to be clean. <laughs> no, and I would say, you know, for, for an example, um, at the um, Housing Authority of the Riverside uh, Terrace, um, they could use a new sign if somebody's looking to their improvements to the playground. Um, there are other projects out there that we could help put you in touch with, with different needs that are out there. So please feel free to uh, contact us. Um, with all this talk of uh, sprinklers and uh, smoke detectors, uh, with us setting our clocks forward, I want to remind everybody, if you do have a battery backup in your, fire, your smoke detector, make sure you replace that. This is the time of year to do that. Mm -hmm. Actually, you, you, you have to, by now, had to go to the 10-year battery or something? Mm -hmm. You had to go to then that. Then switch to that if you haven't done that. Yeah. That's right. Just make sure they're working. You Check actually should change your smoke detectors every 10 years, no matter what, your entire right. house. Right. Um, with all the talk about the coronavirus, everybody should exercise caution, wash your hands, do all that, but please don't have that keep you shying away from our small businesses because a lot of the small businesses in this county, um, they, they do depend on getting a city flow of customers in. And if, if there's a 20% drop off, you can put some of the small businesses out of business. So just remember them. Let's be cautious. Monitor what's going on. Keep an eye on the news. But um, don't just avoid small businesses because you're, you're paranoid. As Dr. Cetola said, we don't currently have coronavirus in the county. Um, if we do, we will let you know, but just remember your, your uh, small businesses. Very good. Commissioner Duma now. Uh, um, so I had the opportunity um, to attend the uh, Canard African American Heritage Society uh, event that they did um, in celebration of um, our, uh, the, the center and um, it is the work that they've done at the old Kennard High School, uh, which is now their, their Heritage Center, um, is amazing. The, the history um, of the African-American community here in Queen Anne's County going back to the early 1900s and as even as early as the, the late 1800s is amazing. Um, uh, and I would highly recommend that that you go on to their website, and, and I believe it's the Kennard um, African American Heritage Center, um, and find out when that that center is open, and and take the time to to go through it. Um, they actually have a, a classroom uh, set up um, that goes back to when the school was open. Um, they have a lot of um, information about the history of Queen Anne's County uh, and and I would just it was it, it's hard to describe how I felt walking through it and, and learning what I learned about um, the the roles that the African-American community played in our in our community over the years so again there's these little hidden treasures in our community that most people don't know about and so I would highly recommend that you go and take a look at that because I was blown away great reading Great reading. Thank you. Commissioner Wilson? Sir. Sir. So I think I have nothing in my thoughts but this uh, viral situation. And <clears throat> it's a very, very uh, peculiar situation because in three or four weeks we could be in much more grave and 
concerning circumstances. And on the other hand, if warm weather really wipes this out, there could be an enormous sigh of relief over the summer. But a thing we all need to be concerned about in government is that summer leads to winter, and there's nothing to say that next fall this thing isn't going to come back. So we're going to spend our full attention uh, and our skills, whatever they are, at communication, telling you where, where things are and what we're up to, and that's it, sir. Very good. They're all wrong. Commission. You're supposed to save that for me. Jack, what do you yes. think? Um, so I was going to take a quick minute um, just to go uh, first go through some of the bills we have. None of our bills that are related to Queen Anne's County as an update have made it out of committee. That's not a good thing right now because uh, we're less than a week away from things have to be crossovered. If they're not crossed over, they don't make it. So, um, and, and it's a, a bevy of bills. We have our CTE bill in. We have our... Uh, our traffic plan bill in, um, House Bill 688. Um, we have the Chop Tank Electric uh, to provide broadband to the uh, Chop Tank Serve areas bills are in. So uh, if anybody's got some spare time and you're staying home because of the coronavirus, please call delegates and senators and not ours because they are supporting it. Call other counties' delegates and senators and get them to support uh, our efforts um, because it is going to be important. And then lastly, as promised, I'm going to share this past Friday night. And Jonathan, can you bring up the uh, ones on the screen so the public can see it? Um, this is the Kerwin bill funding. Uh, as the House bill reads, um, so I don't know how well you're going to be able to see it on the screen there. Um, but if we look at uh, Queen Anne's County, because that's what we're worried about here. Um, if you look at FY22, which is actually the first year of the Kerwin funding um, after what they called Kerwin Light, which was basically the first two years, um, Queen Anne's County, the local share would be 61880565 So for everybody at home that's keeping score, right now we are at 59500 I believe. Is that right, Jonathan? Million. Fifty nine million five hundred thousand. So basically, um, between this year and the next budget, um, we to to meet the Kerwin obligation, the county would have to put in an additional three million three hundred thousand or roughly one point six five per year. Um, unfortunately, that contrasts what uh, the board is asking for because they're asking for roughly five point six million dollars. So we're a little far apart in what Kerwin says is the end-all, be-all, and going to fix everything to what the reality is. And some of us have been saying this for a while, and now the, the what's the old saying? The chickens are coming home to roost or whatever's happening. Something's happening with the chickens. Here we are in farm country, right? We've got chickens. So, um, and it's, it's, I don't see this right now the way this is. Queen Anne's County's in, in, fine. I mean, it's. As commissioners, we we can one point six million dollars is not a big deal in terms of our budget. That's about what we've been doing, I think, uh, for the last uh, three years, and I think last year we did two and a half million. So it's not okay. But some of the other counties on this sheet are, do not fare as well as Queen Anne's County. So that's kind of where the rub comes in. Plus, one of the things that's not highlighted in here and really can't be found anywhere in the Kerwin bill is how you address two things. Number one is salary compression amongst teachers when you start raising salaries up of brand new teachers 
to levels that are going to be within a couple thousand dollars of teachers who have been here for four to eight years. And what are those teachers who have been here four to eight years are going to think when this new teacher comes in making $2,000 less? There's obviously going to be a, a pushback. And these agreements, something else that's not been well publicized, is these agreements will still maintain collective bargaining with the teachers' unions. So I'm not sure how you could put together a bill here for a 10-year span and cover collective bargaining all in that without knowing what those collective bargaining agreements are going to have in them um, as we go forward. So that's one of the main things I think is going to be a, a driver to the cost. And the other one is that we have all of our ancillary workers at work in our school systems that, that are a vital part of the uh, the schools working every day, and that's our. We have our kitchen workers, we have our maintenance workers, we have our janitorial workers, we have our bus drivers, and nowhere in Kerwin does it address their salary compression. Because let's face it, if the teachers are going to go up fifteen, twenty thousand dollars a year, I'm not sure these people that are working there with them are going to want to stay at their present salary. So again, these are a couple things that have not been really taken into account, and by all indications. Uh, the state is going to cover what they are going to cover, and I think Jonathan's got that slide up there. Um, so what that will be is over the next eight years, starting in 2022, the state will, will start to put more money into Queen Anne's County, which is a good thing because we've always complained we don't get enough back from the state. Um, in year one, I believe it is uh, 2.8, got to scroll down, yeah, $2.8 million additional. And then it graduates up to, in 2030, the state will be giving Queen Anne's County an additional $13.6 million. So that will help fill some of the gaps. But, again, with all these unknowns, it's, it's really hard to say if that's going to do it. And like I said, with the, with the board coming in with a budget this year of $5.6 million, and this is what I want to kind of highlight, if you add $5.6 million to the uh, 59.5 we are putting in now, that puts us in approximately the FY24 budget asked for a Kerwin. So this budget, to give, if we gave them that money this year, we would be three years ahead of the Kerwin curve, so to speak, which basically blows out the next eight years of the plan because you're already three years into it funding it. So again, a lot more questions. I still have a lot more questions than I think are answers fiscally on this thing. Um, and it, it's, it's moving through the Senate now, and it should be out of the Senate this week with a final sheet. Like I said, the one we're showing you here today is the most revised. Um, but I just wanted my fellow commissioners to have the same uh, look at it as we go into budget season, knowing what we're being asked to do by Kerwin versus what we're being asked to do by our local board. And I think it's important for the people at home to know what the difference is and, and, and you know, what, what the effects could be on taxes and other things. because. If this gets mandated and these numbers ratchet up and there's mandates, there will be mandates for tax increases to cover these mandates because that's what's going to happen because you can't cut other services out. If the, the board's asking for 8 percent this year, we have about a 3.7, 3.8 3 revenue growth. If they want 8 percent, then there's no money for DES and here we are getting ready to battle coronavirus and all that and, and so it becomes a very sticky situation. So again, as I say every two weeks, stay tuned. So let me ask you a question. I mean, if this thing creeps on a little bit longer, we're already stalled out in New York. Business is slowing down everywhere. If we wind up with some kind of budget shortfall across the state, what happens with Kerwin? This thing can't happen. There's no triggers in that, Stevie. And that's actually, that, that question was actually brought up by several different people. I'd be in one of them saying somehow revenue 
It's like Obamacare. We're just going to look at it and approve it and see what happens. Read it and weep later. Right. <laughs> yeah. But no, you're right. It, it, there should be some tie to the GDP revenue I mean, growth. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. It's crazy. There should be yeah. triggers that if your county, you know, and not every county in the state is built the same in terms of revenue growth. You know, Montgomery County obviously has a lot more yeah. ability for revenue growth than we as Queen Anne's or, you know, smaller Kent County or Somerset County. So to do this one brushstroke, you know, one size fits all approach in terms of, you know, not having triggers for each individual county to either scale back a little bit or, you know, make it so it fits within their county budgets is ridiculous, in my opinion. Well, I'm just, the point I'm raising, though, is all across the spectrum of time, you wind up with a situation where you're not going to get this kind of even growth we've had for 12 years and everyone's gotten used to. The chance of that going forward for 12 more years is about zero. Mm -hmm. So what the hell is, you know? Yep. That's all I got. Okay. On a happier note. On a happier note, let's go back to something that we've seemed to forgot unless we drive between 10 and 2 in the afternoon westbound. Ah, the bridge. The bridge. (laughs) So, uh, you know, I sent an uh, an email out to uh, Sean Powell, who's who's with... uh, um, MDOT, and and, uh, he's been very receptive and and very helpful in giving updates on what's going on, and we use him and and get the word out there. So today I asked him, you know, how much of the bridge decking project is completed? And the latex modified concrete is at 70% now. At Thanksgiving it was at 52%. All work was paused until the weather approximately uh, two weeks ago became more conducive, and they're at 70%. Uh, my next question was, how many more pours until the bridge decking is completed so they stop closing down that center lane? And he didn't really want to tie that to an answer, and I understand, you know, he's a little worried about weather and what what ifs could go wrong. I was hoping for just a, a best guess. But he did say that 92% of the joints and through deck punctures have been repaired and completed. So that's a huge number because that's one of the things slowing everything down. It's the smallest pours, but it's the most critical so they got 92% of that done, and hopefully by the end of this week they'll have all of that done and they can really start to pick up speed on the latex modified. Uh, I did ask, though, once the decks, the latex modified concrete is poured, will they discontinue closing the center lane during the week? And he said yes, so during daytime. As soon as the latex modified concrete is poured, there'll be no more center lane closures. So, you know, better to, if there is a, a silver lining, suffering with it now with a lower uh, volumes than a month from now when things pick up at the beaches. So hopefully that'll be going on. Uh, the gantry work on the eastern shore, the update, and that's what they're building now when you come off the eastbound bridge for electronic, all electronic tolling, that's where it's going to read your easy pass. Uh, that structure is scheduled to be installed the night of March 18th. If the weather's no good, they'll start at Mar- install it March 19th, but that structure will be up. Uh, I also asked about a painting update because it just seems like you know, the, the, that painting's going to go on forever and a day. It's going to start over again. And Stevie gets brokenhearted every time they paint the bridge. He likes the old look. But, uh, ah. yeah, so so he said that uh, once the, the lane is, is open back up again, the painting will go to all evening painting. They won't do it in, during the daytime anymore. So, you know, that that's scheduled to be done within about a year. Uh, same with the railings. You know, they're working on replacing some of the, you know, some of the railings and then painting them. Uh, and then the only, the only other topic I asked about it was any other topics that may or may not impact traffic. 
And uh, they just want to reiterate to the public again, coming up on St. Patrick's Day, you know, the Easter weekend, all these things, while there'll still be two lanes in each direction, they anticipate the extremely heavy traffic. So, you know, plan accordingly if you're going to do something on, the, on these upcoming uh, holidays. Uh, you know, the Easter weekend, like in, in St. Patrick's Day, from Friday through Sunday, and Thursday through Sunday on, on or excuse me, Thursday through Monday on the Easter one. So, you know, again, you know, they are rolling along. Um, I, I'm, I am going to send them another uh, message because yesterday was a beautiful day. They poured, you know, all during midday. But last night when I came home uh, at 9 o'clock, they weren't pouring anything. So I'd like to know why they're not pouring at night. I mean, you know, take advantage of the weather. I mean, uh, you know, I just, the sooner this is done and the sooner we at least have two lanes, everybody will stay happy. So they are moving forward, and God willing, and the river don't rise, you know, they'll have the majority of this done in a month. So, And that's all I got. So with that, I'll entertain a motion to Vamos de la Casa. So moved. Okay. Thank you.